When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and today we are hitting our last port city on our amazing ancient Mediterranean cruise. Paul has been an incredible cruise director and tour guide, and so far he has crisscrossed the Mediterranean with us to show us some incredible places and the people that joined the church there. Now, if you remember, the way that these epistles of Paul are organized, it has nothing to do with geography or chronology, unfortunately. Chronologically would be nice. Instead, it was order of length from longest to shortest. And today we are in Thessalonica, also pronounced Thessalonica or Thessaloniki, if you really want to get Greek, but we'll stick with the American pronunciation and go with Thessalonica. Uh, this is the last geographic spot we're going to see on our cruise. From here on out, we're going to see some pastoral epistles. And by pastoral, we mean a pastor, a, a shepherd, a bishop. So his, his letters to Timothy, his letter to Titus. We'll throw in a quick letter to Philemon next week as well. And then we're on to Hebrews, which doesn't cover a single geographic location. It's Hebrew saints, Jewish converts all across, all across the, the Roman Empire. So today is our last, our last stop, our, our last port of call. Uh, we started off in Rome, as far west as Italy, and then from there went to southeastern Greece and spent some time in Corinth. Uh, from there we went to Asia Minor and spent time in Galatia, and then went west to the coast to, to hang out with, with, in Ephesus. From there we went last week to Philippi in northeastern Greece, and then crossed back over the Aegean to come back to Asia Minor to, to spend time in Colossae. So, in our own study, we have been all over the place, okay, left and right and west and east and north and south, and, and I hope that it's been a helpful study to make sense of what Paul's been teaching all these years. Now, this, this one's interesting because Thessalonica, uh, like I said, northeastern Greece, it's, in, it's close to Philippi, where we spent some time last week, but this one, we are actually going back in time because the letters to the Thessalonians were the first ones Paul wrote which is actually pretty amazing. Remember, Paul wrote his epistles before the gospel writers wrote the gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not yet exist. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they don't exist either. This is the first letter Paul is going to write. And it's about 50 AD. So Jesus was, has only been gone less than two decades. The church is, is so new in these places. And to get a glimpse of what the challenges that are beginning to crop up in these early churches, the kinds of things that they're facing from the outside as well as from the in, what's on Paul's mind and what is he trying to convey, this, this is a really important letter. The, the other thing about uh, Thessalonica that you need to know, and this goes back to our history in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 is a good place to kind of put your feet down in Thessalonica because Paul is on his second missionary journey. He has come up and around through Asia Minor, crossed over the Aegean. He's now in, in Thessalonica, and there is some level of success there as he's trying to plant a church. He starts in the Jewish synagogues, as usual, had a little bit of success there, but then turned out to the Gentiles and, and had much more. You want to see the verse, it's Acts chapter 17, verse 4. 
And some of them, the Jews that is, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. Silas is Paul's mission companion at this point. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. So like I said, a lot more success among the Gentile investigators. And of the chief women, not a few. So incredible sister saints, as usual, gravitating toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. They probably were the ones to open their homes to create house churches. Okay, amazing, amazing women. But there's also, there's also opposition. And that seems to follow Paul wherever he goes. In fact, often where there is greater success, there will be greater persecution in the aftermath. And that's what happens in Thessalonica. Uh, do you remember the phrase, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort? We had joked that that'd be a great name for a band. Well, these, these lewd fellows were there in Thessalonica. And they were the ones that created an, a, a riot, basically. They stirred up the people to an uproar that these, these Christians are going to lead people away from Caesar and onto some other, other king that we don't know, namely Christ. Uh, all kinds of, of, of challenging situations there, to the point that Jason, and Jason is a good Greek name, think Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Jason, who's a convert to the church, one of those Gentiles, not a few, uh, he's housing Paul and Silas, and yet he's dragged before the, the magistrates to, to kind of accuse him and the people that he's, he's harboring of creating this uproar. Jason basically has to put down bail money uh, to make sure that Paul and Silas are safe. And yet, under cover of darkness, the, the, the members of the church whisk Paul and Silas out of town. And so, yeah, Jason's going to lose his bail money, but oh well, at least the, the missionaries don't lose their lives. From there, Paul and Silas are going to go to Berea, a nearby city. And yet the Thessalonian opposers follow them out of town and, and end up creating another uproar, instigating another riot there in Berea. So they're serious. And again, think about this. It's one thing for Paul and Silas to, to face opposition and then flee. Well, not flee. They, they were sent out of town by the, the disciples that were trying to protect them. But they're gone. And it's now no longer their problem. But the converts... They're from Thessalonica. They live there. And so the same opposition that Paul and Silas faced for a, for a brief period, the Thessalonian saints are facing much more long-term. This is a new, a new branch. These are new converts. Will they be able to stay strong in the face of opposition? Especially without Paul physically present to strengthen and encourage them. He'll be doing that from a distance. And that's what we'll see, among other things, in this letter. One other thing to keep in mind, by the way, an underlying theme throughout Thessalonians. If you don't remember anything else about Thessalonians, think about the second coming. That will be something brought up in 1 Thessalonians as well as 2 Thessalonians because it's what's on the, the people's mind. Often, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, and apocalyptic is you know, the apocalypse, the end of the world. The book of Revelation is the greatest example of apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. The book of Daniel is an amazing one in the Old Testament. Well, of all the letters of Paul, Thessalonians will be the closest thing to apocalyptic. Because the saints, they were hoping and praying that Jesus would be coming back soon. Apocalyptic literature is often written during times of intense persecution. Because there is this sense of, I don't know how much longer I can hold on. So come, Lord Jesus, come. And there is this apocalyptic urgency, this divine impatience on the people's part of hurry and come to save the day. And, and Paul is going to have to explain a few things about the timing of the second coming. And 
encourage greater patience on the part of these suffering saints, because it's going to be a while. We'll see more of that in 2 Thessalonians. Now we're going to split today's lesson in half. Well, not exactly half, but our first part will be 1 Thessalonians, and the second will be the second. Perfect, right? Uh, the second letter is much shorter, so the, if you can survive the first letter, the second will be a nice little bonus for you. Okay? But I want to dive in and see what Paul is saying to these amazing saints. By now, he has already left Thessalonica. He's gone down south. He spent time in Athens. Remember that? Uh, uh, teaching on Mars Hill. And then from Athens, he went to Corinth. And it's most likely there in Corinth that he writes this letter to send back to the Thessalonians. It's like, I miss you. You're amazing saints. Stay faithful. Hold out true to the end. And, and I wish I could be there with you. People like Silas and Timothy are going back and forth and sending letters or bringing letters and, and then coming back to Paul with, with, with reports. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And so catch a, let's take our, our first glimpse of the church as it is spreading as far west now as Greece. And, and how are the early saints doing? With that, dive in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's the normal salutation we've come to expect. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. Silvanus, by the way, is Silas. That's just, Silvanus is the Latin form of it. And Timotheus, that's Timothy. And we'll spend a lot of time with him next week. Now, here's these, this missionary trio that is writing this letter. The JST then adds a phrase that we, would have, we should have expected. It's a phrase that comes up in most of Paul's other letters. And for whatever reason, it got lost in Thessalonians. But the JST adds, servants of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is Paul and his companions establishing their authority as usual. And they're writing unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace as usual is what Paul is extending to these saints. But then he calls them out for, for good behavior as he's done in several other letters, just blessing them, praising them for the things they're doing well. And here, what are they doing well? We give thanks to God always for you, all, making mention of you in our prayers. That's, that's major gratitude. Every prayer, always, for every one of you, all, well, they deserve it. Because notice what Paul is saying, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I mean, of course we can say we know your election because you, you live like the elect. You are faithful, wonderful converts. You are holding strong in the face of intense opposition and not just kind of holding on for dear life. Notice the phrases. In fact, there's three things he points out and each each three, each of the three has a pair. And when there's paired attributes or paired principles, keep an eye out. They may be contraries. And this does seem like an interesting set. Notice the three. Work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Those, think about those contraries. The first one, work of faith. We usually think of works and faith as being opposites, pulling against each other. And yet here they are fused together in a beautiful paradox. To think of faith that is made manifest in work and work that is infused with faith to give it purpose. This, that theirs is a work of faith. And then a labor of love. Sometimes we split those and pick one at the expense of the other. 
and we either labor, but we don't do it very lovingly. It's like we're, we're serving out on the chain gang and we want the people we're serving to know how hard it is to help them. Uh, that's, that's labor, but it's not love. But then flip it, others, other times we express our love constantly, but we don't put our money where our mouth is. We don't do anything about that love. It's not made manifest. But here in Thessalonica, it is a, a loving labor the saints are engaged in. And it's a, a laborious love. Beautiful combination. My favorite is the last one, patience of hope. Because sometimes hope can feel oh, impatient. We, we want it so bad. Again, this, this, this uh, apocalyptic urgency. When's Jesus coming? And, and you hope for that, but you want the hope to be fulfilled as quickly as possible. Oh, to have patience, to, to extend that hope for as long as it's necessary. Then again, the flip side is also true. Sometimes we have patience in such abundance that it's as if we don't think anything is ever going to change. And our patience leans to, more toward complacency or almost apathy to the point that we, people start to wonder, do, but do you have hope that things will ever change? Again, for these Thessalonian saints, they are combining the two. They are proving the contraries in beautiful ways. We need to do the same as we are waiting for the second coming. In verse 5, for our gospel. And gospel means good news, right? So extra, extra, read all about it. This, this is the news we've been spreading. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. These were not empty promises Paul was making. This was not fake news. This was the real thing. And it wasn't just in word. It was in power. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? I'm, I'm not going to use flowery words of man's wisdom. No, I, I'm going to hold back on that. Rein myself in. No worldly wisdom here. Because I want your faith to stand in the power of God, not the wisdom of men. This gospel we are preaching isn't about words. It's about power. And a power that flows into your life as you begin to embrace this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Christ's grace that infuses you and empowers you. And it is the Spirit of God that assures you that what you've embraced is indeed true. There is power in what Paul is teaching here. And that assurance, you know, you have, you have a testimony of these things. So hold on to that. Now, where does this power come from? What, where, what, what is inviting the Spirit to give this kind of assurance? Notice the next phrase. Paul says to them, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. It's the missionary's personal example. We have been walking the walk, not just talking the talk. That's why it's not just word, it's power. And there has to be a lived experience behind what we preach if we expect power to come. That phrase, what manner of men. Do you remember 3 Nephi when Jesus says something similar? What manner of men ought you to be, even as I am? Well, that's what Paul and Silas and Timothy have been. In fact, he says to them, Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. And again, if the missionaries are following the Lord and the converts are following the missionaries, then, well, the converts are following the Lord as well. And so this wonderful kind of train leading in the direction of the Savior, notice what they were up against in that following. You were followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. 
Now, affliction with joy? <laughs> Talk about contraries. Talk about uh, a paradox. How on earth can you have joy of the Holy Ghost when you're receiving the word in so much affliction? Well, it goes back to that power. Power to get you through it. It goes back to that assurance to assure you that it is worth whatever you face to have embraced the true gospel. To the point, like he said, that all throughout Macedonia, throughout Achaia, and those are the two regions of ancient Greece. Okay? It's the Roman Empire, but the, Greece, the Greek part of it, uh, Macedonia is the half in the north, and that's where Philippi and Thessalonica are. Achaia is the part of the south, that's where Athens and Corinth are. And it seems like the word is spreading. There's something about those Thessalonians. And their conversion is sending ripples across the land as people start to wonder, wow, why, why would they change? Why would they embrace this upstart, this upstart religious group? Oh, it's, it's not just some group. This is the kingdom of God spreading forth. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to Godward or toward God, as we would say, is spread abroad. So everywhere Paul goes, everywhere he, he's, he's trying to share the gospel, in some ways the news has preceded him. Word is spreading quickly. Uh, rumors just going abroad that something has been happening up north. Their faith toward God is spreading so that we need not to speak anything. Can you picture that as missionaries? It's like I knock on a door and I'm about to share the first discussion. And they're like, wait a minute, we heard about people joining your church up north. Is that true? If, if they changed, there must be something important in your words. So yes, I'm all ears. In fact, notice what, what Paul describes as, as the news that's come. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. The non-members are telling the missionaries about their own experience. Okay, It's like, well, we heard the story. And this is the story they heard. How ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. As far as potential investigators up north in Macedonia or down south in Achaia are concerned, those were the words that struck them. And when Paul began to preach, they were like, whoa, 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 we already heard some of this. We heard rumors of what they did up north in Thessalonica, of leaving behind idols. In fact, I'm surprised they even used that term. This is the Greek and Roman pantheon. These are the gods and goddesses up on Mount Olympus. They're the, they're the ones that are, that are supposed to be you know, guiding the Roman Empire to glory. And yet these new Christian converts, oh, those are just idols. It's just wood or stone. It's nothing. This is like Paul in Athens and the altar to the unknown God, whom they ignorantly worshipped. Paul preached to them. Well, the Thessalonian saints seem to be doing likewise. You mean they turned from what they now consider idols to a true God? A real God? One who sent his son, Jesus Christ? In fact, one, the way it's described, the details they brought up at the end there, Jesus is the one we must follow. He was raised from the dead. So resurrection, as always, is a major point. 
Remember, Paul is an apostle, a witness of the, re- of the resurrection. But then also that we wait for his son from heaven to come and deliver us from the wrath to come. There's the apocalyptic hint. This is second coming context. And with a church less than two decades old, they're already looking forward to the coming of Christ to save them from wrath. Go back to Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the signs of the times, the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus explains to the saints all that they must face. And to picture these converts, wow, what are we up against? And they know it. They're, they're feeling it firsthand with the opposition they're facing there at home and wondering if Jesus has already been raised from the dead. And the next thing we hear in, from Scripture or from, from prophecy and the words of these apostles is that he will return. Well, then let's go. What, what are we waiting for? We're feeling this wrath. May Jesus come and save us from it. Now, chapter 2 then begins with Paul continuing to speak about these incredible converts and the connection he had with them. Paul is an amazing missionary. I I wish I was half the missionary he was. But the connection and love he had for the people he taught, we've seen that in every letter he's written as well. Here he's going to bring it up again. So verse 1 and 2, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. And not in vain in terms of focused on us, like vanity, or not in vain in terms of meaningless for you, like it didn't count for anything. No, it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, And were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. And that's not contention like Paul getting up in arms. No, a better translation is, we preach the gospel of God in the face of strong opposition. Now here the opposition he's describing happened in Philippi. And yeah, we spent our time in Philippians last week. And remember that phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings? The Philippians understood that fellowship. They'd been inducted into it. The Thessalonians did as well. But what's interesting here, Paul's saying, I preached the gospel in Philippi, and it was rough. We did it in the face of much suffering. We were shamefully entreated. Kind of run out of town on a rail. Well, that's a preview of coming attractions. Same thing's going to happen in, in Thessalonica. And yet Paul said, despite that opposition in, the previous, in their previous area, they didn't tone things down. They didn't hold themselves back. No, they were bold in our God to speak to you. Oh, you'd think they'd learn their lesson. <laughs> no, not when it's the wicked world that's teaching it to you. The lessons they were learning were from God, and it was to be bold in the gospel of Jesus Christ, come what may, to share the good news even in the face of opposition and persecution. The sun is beating down on these tender plants. What's keeping them alive? Deep roots reaching to the living water. And so, of course, Paul will be bold. He's praying that his converts will remain bold in what they've accepted. So he says in verse 3, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. So take those three lesser motivations right off the list. That's not why we were coming. That's not why we were teaching. It wasn't deceitful. We weren't trying to, to trick you into accepting the gospel. Okay? It was not in uncleanness. We set the right example, like he said in chapter 1. And it wasn't in guile. We, we taught you truth, and we did it truthfully. 
We were above board. No wonder power was there and spiritual reassurance. And think of why Paul would preach that way. The next line gives us a clue. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. And I love what that phrase tells us about how Paul viewed his mission. We were allowed to come. It's not a matter of like, okay, I'll go do God a favor. I guess I'll go. No, it's God doing us a favor to let us. Remember back in John 15 when Jesus says to the apostles, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Take it as the honor it is. And as a missionary, it was such a privilege to go teach the gospel in Puerto Rico. In fact, I had a mission companion that before we were companions, he had to go home from his mission. There had been some things that were unresolved before his mission. And man, when you're that close to God in the mission field, old wounds start to open so that slivers that never came out can start working their way to the surface. He, moved by the, the Spirit of God, decided to take care of those things. And he had to go home to do it. That's hard. He, but he took care of it. Amazing. And he was able to return to the same mission field, which would have been amazing, but also difficult. It's like, well, where were you? Uh, tough things. I was his companion on the second half of his mission. And he was as good a missionary as I'd ever seen. He was so consecrated, so focused, so humble, because he saw his mission for what it really was. A gift, not a right a true privilege, something God allowed him to do. That the gospel was something he had been entrusted with. That's the phrase that Paul uses. We were allowed and we were put in trust. Do we feel that way? Or do we take the gospel for granted? Do we feel like, oh, okay, I guess it's my turn and I'm supposed to be out serving in this calling or going on this mission or whatever it might be? No, it is a sacred trust God has given us. And we ought to be pinching ourselves every day we are privileged to serve him, that he's allowing it. That's how Paul felt. No wonder he was such an incredible missionary. The next line, though, again, as he's describing how he taught, he says, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. So, yeah, we don't care what people think, whether it's negative or positive. We only care for God's opinion of us. So he says, for neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Now the first half of that, think about what he's describing. We, we weren't doing it to be seen of men. We certainly weren't using flattering words. Think how often that's used in the Book of Mormon to describe what the Antichrists were doing. Oh, just trying to scratch the itch, trying to tell you just what you wanted to hear, to make it easy on the ears. That's not Paul. It's good news, but it's hard sayings at times. As you're turning from idols to the living God. I, I and my companions, Paul is saying, we, we preach the way we'd, we were called to. No cloak of covetousness there. We weren't trying to hide behind, we weren't trying to hide our priestcraft behind some kind of Oh, feigned a desire to do you some good. No, there's no covetousness on our part. We were doing this for you, not for us. 
To the point that, here's his proof, we didn't ask you for anything. The way he says it at the end there, we, 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 weren't, we didn't want to be burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Because as apostles, this is full time for them. How do they put food on their table? I mean, in, in the mission field, often you'll pass around the calendar through Relief Society and you get your meals all covered, right? Well, Paul could have done that. Others did, and that's no problem. In fact, he got into trouble in Corinth for not doing that. And they're like, oh, well, you must not really be an apostle if you aren't expecting us to provide for you. And he's like, I'm actually, I, I am an apostle, definitely, uh, but I'm, I don't want to be burdensome. I don't want to make, I don't want to expect anything from you. There's actually two interesting reasons for that in my, in my mind. One would be what it does for the people. Like he says here, we don't want to be burdensome. In, in ancient Greece and Rome, if you're a philosopher, you'd kind of itinerant go around teaching and gathering disciples, and they would provide for you because you're providing an education. Well, Paul could have done the same, and other apostles did, but he, again, he chose not to. I'm no stranger to manual labor. I can make tents, and so that's how I'll put food on my table so that you don't have to provide for me. I'm trying to do you a favor. But then the flip side, I'm also trying to do myself, well, not myself, I'm trying to do God a favor. Well, he did me the favor of letting me come. We know that. But I don't, want to, I don't want to burden you, but I also don't want to be beholden to you. And that's part of the beauty of an, a non-paid clergy, is they don't have to worry about, well, flattering words. Because if I can flatter you, then you'll probably put a little more money in the basket. Uh, if I flatter you, then I won't scare you out of church with any of these hard sayings. I mean, honestly, when I was in divinity school, I remember I was in a class on theological preaching. And we were studying together. We'd take texts out of the Bible and try to understand their theology. And then how would I preach this in a sermon? And again, everyone in that class was studying for the ministry. And... It struck me because at one point we had discussed, I can't remember what theology we were talking about, but we were excited about ways to, to share this in a sermon kind of setting. And this one student, minister in training, kind of shook her head and she said, ah, I wish I could preach this to my congregation. She already had a congregation she was preaching to as she was working on her degree. And I was like, why, why can't you? It's beautiful. It's right there in the Bible. Your people believe in it. And she said, well, but not in, in that way. Uh, along the political spectrum, for example, they're so far on one side that if I teach that, even though it's based in Scripture, they're not going to take it well. They're, they won't let me preach that. And it was the first time I realized, wow, you really are at the mercy of your congregation, aren't you? And not in a priestcraft kind of way, but simply it's my... It's how I make my living. I have to be able to keep the lights on at the church. I have to pay my staff. It's, it's an expensive thing to run a congregation. And so I'm dependent on people donating. And if I offend them, they leave and their donations leave with them. Uh, no, I can't, I can't preach that. There's something about ecclesiastical independence on Paul's part. I will not burden you but I, I will burden you with truth. I will come boldly and not sugarcoat anything. I'm going to teach you the way, the way, the way you need to know. Okay? 
Now verse 9, excuse me, verse 7. If that's the strong side, I'm, I'm not going to burden you because I'm going to teach you the truth. Notice how he did it. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Now, nurse there, we think of somebody in the hospital and they're paid to help us, right? This is not a nurse like that. A better translation would be a nursing mother. Ah, now we understand why she cherisheth her children. This newborn. Can you think of how Paul is viewing these new converts? You are infants in the gospel. You are babes in Christ. But I love you. I cherish you like a mother would. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Remember earlier in another letter he said to the saints, you loved me so much, you didn't want to just provide for me. You would have pulled your own eyes out and given them to me. Well, the feeling was mutual. Here Paul is telling the Thessalonian saints, I love you with all my heart. I cherish you you newborns in the gospel, and I would give you anything. Well, by preaching the gospel, I gave you everything, but I would give you so much more. You are dear to us. He says, for ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. And do those words mean anything to nursing mothers? Oh yeah, they just went through it, right? They labored. There was the pains of travail in birth. And Paul felt all of that in bringing the gospel to them. He said, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Are mothers chargeable to their children? Do they, do they charge the kids for what they've given? No. The, in fact, the newborn child can offer nothing in return. But that's okay. Mom's not asking for anything. What a privilege to be able to nurse this newborn. A part of me, a piece of me, all the labor and travail I went through has been forgotten, swallowed up in the joy of new life. Paul is feeling that for these wonderful saints. I remember, in, in, I think it was to the Galatians when he said, am I really going to have to give birth to you all over again? Did you somehow crawl back into the womb because it was safer in there? And, and now I'm going to have to go through labor and travail all over again? Well, so be it. Ideally, though, it's, I brought the gospel forth unto you, and you are now going to grow up in God, as a good child would. In verse 10, he goes on, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily, it's a fun word to say, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. This goes back to the example that he referred to back in chapter 1. And it was a holy example, a just example. They were unblameable. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. We saw the nursing mother in the previous passage. Now we get to see the nurturing father. And it's amazing to put it in family terms. What do we call each other at church? Brother and sister. To see those who brought the gospel to us as a mother or father in the faith. And the kind of mother that cherisheth and the kind of father that exhorts and charges along with comforting. They, what a great combination. Talk about goodly parents. 
These Thessalonian saints had them in Paul and Silas and Timothy. He says in verse 13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And that effectual working that is doing something, it's having its intended effect. So we saw back in, in chapter 1. There's power there, power to change lives. There is assurance there to reassure you that you're on the right path. Oh, it, it was given in that kind of spirit by Paul and by Silas and by Timothy. But it was also received in the same way by these Thessalonian converts. There's something powerful here in terms of Paul. We saw it in chapter 1. I, I wasn't giving you man's words. I was giving you God's words. And if that was Paul's perspective in preaching, it was also the Thessalonian saints' perspective in receiving. This is, I mean, love you, Paul. Don't get me wrong. But this is, these are not your words, are they? They come from a far more celestial source. And so here, in truth, what did I hear? The word of God. I know that. It's not the word of man. But how we perceive it makes all the difference. Years ago in a general conference talk, Sister Bonnie L. Oscarson, she was the, the young women's general president at the time. Amazing message. She's, she basically asked us, how do you perceive the church? How do you perceive the gospel? What is it to you? Regarding the church, she basically said, is it just a social organization? Well, Some place we get together and hang out on Sundays. Or is it the kingdom of God on earth? preparing the world for the coming of Christ. How about the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve? Who are they? What are they? Is it a board of directors? And they're just kind of running the corporation. Or are these prophets, seers, and revelators guiding the kingdom of God? The way we perceive them will determine the way we approach their words. And here, the Thessalonians, they nailed it. This isn't man, this is God. Think about that. If you remember the, the cryptic passage at the end of Matthew chapter 10, where he say, says, if you receive the words of a prophet in the name of a prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward. Then again, if you receive a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, you'll receive a righteous man's reward. And I remember for years reading that going, what is he saying there? And I think it really does come back to that idea of Perception. How do you perceive? How do you receive these people? Because if it's just a righteous old man, that's all President Nelson is. Just a sweet little grandfatherly figure. Then, okay, what do you get for following grandpa? Well, a pat on the head and a Werther's original? <laughs> I don't know. Is that all it is, though? Whereas if President Nelson's a true prophet, and I testify that he is, then what reward comes for following true prophets? Oh, God will determine that, but it's life-changing. Okay, the, the Thessalonians get it. Paul did too. So he says to them in verse 14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. What he's getting at is back in Jerusalem, back in Judea, well, it was a heavy Jewish population. And so as Christianity emerged from Judaism, the Jews who remained in Judaism 
began persecuting their countrymen that had converted. You guys are going through the same thing. Now, Thessalonica is a, a Gentile city, and so you have Gentile neighbors, and they're persecuting you too. But you are suffering like things. Talk about the fellowship of suffering. Well, welcome to it. You're a part now. And so whether your opposition comes from Jews or Gentiles doesn't matter so much. The question is, will you hold on to the truth you've embraced? Now, speaking of those Jews that were persecuting Christians back in Judea, Paul says this, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins all the way, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. So in some ways, no wonder they're persecuting you. They killed the Lord Jesus. They killed their own prophets. They're, of course they're going to persecute us. Now, I don't know about you Gentiles and, and how things have gone among you, but I imagine there's probably a history of prejudice and persecution as well. So get used to it. It's what we signed up for. But shame on those who are getting in the way of the gospel going forth. The way he put it there, they fill up their sins always. Why? Because they're forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. They don't want us to share the gospel. Well, well might man put forth his puny arm and stop the work from progressing. Well, there's some puny arms and maybe apparently some not so puny ones that are causing some struggle, some suffering among these fledgling saints. But, Paul says in verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you, and the Greek word there actually means to be orphaned. Remember, he's been using family imagery. I, I'm your mother, I'm your father, but I've been taken from you. Remember, I was driven out of town on a rail. And has that left you feeling abandoned? Has it left you feeling orphaned? I hope not. So what does he say to these, these orphans? I was taken from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart. My heart is still right there with you. Why do you think I'm writing this letter? Okay, my heart is attached. I endeavor the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. That's why I'm down here in Corinth still. I can't come back yet. I wish I could. There seems to be opposition. I, by now, I probably would have come back a time or two, once and again. But I can't. Please know, though, that my heart is with you, that I have not abandoned you. I certainly haven't abandoned the gospel. I pray you won't either. The way he says it at the end here, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. For ye are our glory and joy. Now again, he's putting this in context of the second coming. Did you catch the phrase? The presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Oh, I don't know when it'll be. I hope it's soon. In a way, we all feel a little bit orphaned without the father of our faith with us. But we're waiting for Jesus to return. I know he's with us in spirit, even though he can't be in presence. But to these amazing converts, I mean, you returned missionary. Did you feel this way about the people you taught? You parents, do you feel this way about your children? Of course you do. You teachers, do you feel this way about your students? 
I'm, thankfully, I always have. They are my joy and rejoicing. You are. <laughs> you who are listening to, to meet you and to rejoice with you in our shared love of Scripture and the experiences we're having together in the Word of God. I, I love what happens socially when we engage with one another spiritually. And to see here, you're our hope, you're our joy, you're our crown, and there you are, gems on the crown of every servant of God. You mean everything to me, Paul is telling them. With that in mind, what advice would he give? Suffering saints that he loves with all his heart. Look at chapter 3 and see the advice begin. Verse 1, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear. I mean, I was biting my tongue, I was, I was pacing back and forth, but I couldn't hold on any longer. When we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. And remember when Paul went to Athens and he was waiting for a mission companion to show up, and he, he couldn't forbear there either, and so he hiked up Mars Hill and began to preach. Okay, that, that's the, the glorious impatience on the part of Paul. Well, I thought it would be good to just leave me at Athens so I can preach the gospel there, but ah, I'm still worried about you, so what am I going to do? Next verse, he sent Timotheus, our brother, and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Or as the NIV says, you know quite well that we are destined for them. Now that, that's an interesting admission there. Persecution shouldn't have surprised you. It's kind of what we signed up for. Now, when we accepted the kingdom of God, we left neutral ground forever. And so now we've got friends among the faithful, but that means we have enemies on the outside. We should have seen this coming. It is the fellowship of suffering after all. So no wonder Paul is going to need to send Timothy back to comfort them in their afflictions and to establish them so that no winds and waves will knock them off the rock upon which they are founded. Okay? We saw that last week in, in Colossae. The, Col the Colossian saints, you've got to be rooted and grounded and established and settled. We saw Paul say that in the book of Acts. I could, I could not be moved. None of these things move me, he said, regarding persecution that he faced. Well, he's hoping that, that a powerful or immovable missionary is going to create powerful, immovable saints. And just to make sure, Timothy, go back. They need all the help and support, encouragement, establishing, edifying that they can get. Because we can't let them, we can't let others move them off the rock. And again, that, that phrase, you know that that's what we were appointed for. He builds on that in verse 4 and 5. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Now, there's all kinds of beautiful phrases in those two verses. Back in four, we told you before that we would suffer tribulation? In some ways, I remember as a, as a missionary, as soon as someone accepted a baptismal invitation, we would often warn them about what just lay ahead. 
Like, we, you have decided to turn away from the wicked world and come unto Christ. But you know, the adversary can't stand a jailbreak. And so prepare yourself, now that you are accepting truth, for opposition to increase. I mean, have you told that to young men or young women that put in their mission papers and like, oh, get ready. Uh, you're about to face opposition because the adversary knows he's got his back against the wall. This is goal line stand, and he's going to increase, the he's going to strengthen the defense. And so here, we told you this, so it, it wouldn't come as a surprise. Do you remember the sim a similar phrase from Jesus? Remember at the Last Supper? One of you will betray me tonight, and I'm telling you this in advance. So you're not shell-shocked when it happened. So it doesn't shake your faith like, oh, we must be following the wrong guy because he got blindsided. Oh, I wasn't blind to it. He said the same thing about the crucifixion. I'm telling you in advance. So when it happens, you aren't worried like, did something go wrong? No, this was the plan. When the saints first settled in Missouri, the Lord says in the first revelation that they're there, prepare yourself because this one's going to be rough. And then later, as they're being driven out of the state, the Lord gives them another revelation saying, told you. Well, he says it nicer. But he basically says, I told you all of this before that it was going to be difficult, that there would be suffering and affliction, persecution, trial, tribulation. This is the mission president welcoming you to the field and saying, so glad you're here. You're in for quite the adventure, but it's going to be hard. Don't be surprised. Peter's going to say that actually in his epistle. Don't be shocked when hard things happen. It's what we signed up for. And God told us this in advance. He told us that the last days would be a day of deception of the elect. He told us that people would be shaken in their faith with earthquakes in diverse places. He told us that we would be a struggling minority. And yet, the power of God would be shed forth upon the saints. Pay attention to Scripture, and you won't be so surprised by the things we go through in life. But also what he said in verse 5, but, I'm, but I am worried about you. Again, I knew it was coming. That's why I tried to prepare you for it. But I was also even trying to prepare myself to handle whatever you would go through. It's hard as a parent in the faith to see what your children are going through. As a missionary, worried for your converts. And so here, I love the phrase, part of sending Timothy back was, yes, to establish you, to comfort you, but also to know your faith. I love that phrase. I sent to know your faith. How are you doing? Honestly, I'm jealous of you younger missionaries that served in the days of social media and email where you could exchange contact information that was more or less permanent. It's electronic. It follows them wherever they go. I don't know how to find the people I taught. I've searched on Facebook and social media, and I just can't find them. But I wish I could so I could know their faith and strengthen it whenever it seemed to be slacking. I, as, as a teacher, I care about every student I've ever had. I've, I tell them, <laughs> to me, once a student, always a friend. And, and I love reconnecting with them as years go by. How's your faith? How are you doing? 
teenagers I taught who now have teenagers of their own and they're faithful and valiant parents. It's like, man, I hope you had kids as incredible as you were when I got to teach you. But to know their faith, Elder Bednar even said, one of the great things about daily scripture study as a family is it's an early warning system. You can detect the first hints that your children may be losing interest or being pulled in other directions. Their interest isn't quite as, it isn't quite as present as before. They, their insights aren't as deep. It feels more like you're force-feeding the, the fruit of the tree of life rather than them just rejoicing in it. To know their faith, do we know the faith of one another? Do we know the faith of our spouse, of our children, of the people we're called to serve? I don't mean we have to pry into all of their business, but in a way, to, be, to reassure them that we're safe conversation partners so that they know they can ask their questions, share their concerns, let us know, be vulnerable, and let us know how they're really doing spiritually. There's something about knowing one another's faith so we can help them. Paul says in verse 6, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. So the, the news was wonderful. He sent Timothy up. Find out how they're doing. Timothy comes back. They're doing great. Here's a, let me tell you about their faith. That's the belief side of things. But also let me tell you about their charity. That's the behavior side of things. These people are, are nailing the two great commandments. <laughs> the vertical, they're loving God. It's evidenced by their faith. Horizontal, they are loving their neighbor. It's evidenced by their charity. Oh, good news back in Thessalonica. He also says, And that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. That's another great piece of news that Timothy brought back. Not only are they doing really well, they miss us just like we miss them. They remember you fondly, Paul. And how could you not? Therefore, brethren... We were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. Did you catch the pronouns there? We live, if ye stand fast. I mean, we were distressed by your faith. And not by, about would be a better word there. We were distressed. We were kind of stressing out, like, are they doing okay? We got driven out of town. They're still in town. How's Jason doing? He lost all that money when, when he paid bail for us. Now, those, those Greeks, not a few, those, those women there back that embraced the gospel, are, are they still holding on? And they were. So no reason to stress about that. Instead, you can live because spiritually they're still alive. I've heard it said that parenting is the process of taking the heart out of your body and putting it into someone else's. Pretty good description, right, Mom, moms and dads? And that's how Paul is defining himself here, a, a, a cherishing mother, a nurturing father. I love my kids. I love my converts. I love my students, the people that I've served. And I live when you stand fast. My heart's in your body. And I feel for you. I worry about you. I just want things to go well. And my heart breaks when yours does. But it rejoices when you're doing, when you're doing great. And the Thessalonians were. 
Now, in our day, I know there are many heavy hearts out there. Because if this is true, then its opposite is also true. If we live when they stand fast, then it often feels like a part of us dies when they don't. When they struggle, we struggle. This is the parent of the prodigal son. And Paul isn't having that problem here with the Thessalonians, but many of us know what it feels like for our hearts to break over our children's choices. I remember seeing a Facebook post years ago from a former student of mine that I absolutely loved. Amazing sense of humor, great outgoing personality. We'd had some incredible connections. I even saw him later uh, at a church history site. And he was a returned missionary and just full of fire and faith. And it was so amazing to catch up. Well, I saw a Facebook post from him that was full of anger and bitterness and, and a lack of faith. He had been moved out of the gospel, and he was so mad at the church for what he perceived as its negative effect on his life. Well, I reached out to him in love and just said, man, I'm sorry. It sounds like things have, it, it's been a rough go for a while, and I just want you to know that I'm here for you. His response to my, to my reaching out to him shocked me because instead of any kind of thanks for thinking of me or, or yeah, it's been rough or, hey, we had some good times back in the day, it was, it was his anger was now just, not just directed at the church. It was directed at me because I was the embodiment of the church. In his mind, it's like, you, you're the one that, that led me down this path telling me lies as a seminary teacher. And I was like, wow, okay, how do I respond? And again, I, I tried to respond with nothing but love. I am so sorry you feel this way, but I will stand by everything I taught you when you were a teenager. I will not be moved from the testimony I had then and the testimony I have now. I'm sorry for what you've gone through in the meantime. If you want to wrestle with this together, I'm happy to be your conversation partner. But, but man, that was, that was hard. That hurt. And that was not the first, or not, that was not the last time I've had an experience like that. We live in the day that the Lord warned us about. He told us before. So prepare yourself to rejoice in those that stay strong, but also to mourn over those who struggle. There's no escaping when you love the people that you've taught. Okay? In verse 9, Paul then says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? That's this intense gratitude that Paul feels for those converts, the joy he receives from them, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. That's amazing too. Yes, the Thessalonian saints are doing amazingly well, but does that mean they've arrived? They're still newborns in the gospel. They still, that, that's why Paul doesn't want to orphan them. I wish I were, I were right there to teach you the new member discussions, to, to be your gospel doctrine teacher, to, to serve alongside you and help you grow up in God. 
get your sea legs underneath you and just, you can handle this. Man, I had to leave so prematurely. And so could I, if I could, I'd come back and perfect what is lacking. Think about the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus. And what, what lack I yet? Oh, just one thing. But can we work on it together? If you know your children well enough, or your students well enough, or the people you serve well enough, you'll probably be able to tell what is lacking in their faith. Especially if you proactively go to know their faith, like we saw in the previous verse. They're doing well. Here's a few things they're still missing. Well, then let's help them with those things. I remember I read a story years ago about a father and son who loved to play basketball together. But the father was able to recognize his son's weakness, which was going to his left. He just couldn't defend with the left hand. And so guess what dad did every time they were out on the, on the, the sports court or on the driveway? It was, it was, I'm going to your left. And the son hated it because the son knew his weakness too. And it felt like dad was exploiting it every time. And really what dad was doing was not exploiting the weakness, was, but rather trying to help turn that weakness into a strength. He was trying to perfect that which was lacking in his son's basketball game. And sure enough, later when his son was in high school and the pressure was on and it was an important game and it, they were up, but the other team was coming for that last second shot. He said, it, it, the, the father said, it was an amazing feeling to see their, uh, the other team's best player come straight at my son and go to his left and to see my son successfully defend him. And, win, and they won the game. Ah, I, I helped my son perfect that which was lacking. And it made all the difference. In verse 11, Paul then says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men even as we do toward you, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. There's that nod to the second coming once again. We're, saying this whole, we're sending this whole letter in the context of the coming of Christ. Now, this is about as beautiful a parental prayer as you could ask for in Scripture. Praying that they increase and abound in love. You're doing great. I just want you to continue progressing, get even greater, get even better at this. I want to establish you, your heart, make it unblameable. Let it be holy. Remember, we preached holily. <laughs> Are you living the gospel in just as holy a way? And best of all, that part, the part of the prayer where he asks, may God direct our way unto you. Remember, I can't be there. Satan keeps hindering me. But my heart's with you. And I pray that God will open the, open the way or direct my path so I can come. If you have a wayward child, pray that God will direct your way to them. If you have a student or someone that you're trying to lead or teach that just won't listen, pray that God will direct you to them. I've heard it said that when, when somebody puts up a wall between you and them, to the discerning eye, there will always be at least one loose brick. And it's a matter of 
poking at bricks and f trying to find which one will move a bit. So you can peek through it and reach the person that's on the other side. That's going to take prayers like this as well. Direct our way. Help us discern where's the opening that I can come and help them feel God's love and mine. Paul was amazing at, at finding loose bricks uh, because he prayed like this. Please, Father, direct our way. Now, from there in chapter 4, you will see Paul, well connected to these saints that he loves, trying to help them progress on the journey. These babes in Christ grow up in God. How do we do this? Well, notice verse 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. You, you know, we, we taught it, you accepted it. The question is, will yours be some kind of static spirituality? Will yours be some kind of plateaued obedience? Or will you keep climbing? Will you grow in God? Notice how he ended chapter 3. We're praying that God will increase you and abound, so that love abounds in you. And here he says the same thing starting in chapter 4. We want you to abound more and more. Because, verse 3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And that takes a while. That is perfecting what is lacking in your faith. It's not just the justification, you've been forgiven. It's the sanctification. You've been transformed. And that's God's will, your sanctification. Now, to do that, hmm, what are you up against? Here's a specific sin. And remember, Paul loves listing a whole bunch of them. But here's just one that's been on his mind that he's worried might lead away the Thessalonian saints. He says, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel or control his body in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. Unfortunately, you're, you're surrounded by those kinds of Gentiles. They're the ones that make, it's making it hard to hold on to the gospel. They're the ones that, it's, that are making it hard to live the gospel. We've set good examples. They set bad ones. They are normalizing these kinds of immoral behaviors. And no wonder we're hoping you abound in truth because that keeps you from falling back into error. If the light continues to grow, then the darkness is not creeping in. So of all the things you, you might be led away to do, above all, abstain from fornication. Flee immorality. It will drag you down. In some ways, you sense a, a ship. Remember, we saw this with Ephesians. It's not, you can't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Well, how about being tossed to and fro on every current of culture? And if the norm in Thessalonica is some kind of immorality, no, keep your hand on the rudder. Keep your hand on the wheel. Act. Don't be acted upon. Live the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Paul says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner. And defraud could mean to take advantage of. Don't do that. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. I mean, God is going to be your avenger? You remember back, uh, back in, in Corinth when he's warning them, 
Are you suing fellow saints? Seriously? You can't handle the kind of friction that, that comes up between brothers and sisters at church? You're going to go put, take them to court? No. You've got to be better than that. Here, you don't even have to take each other to court. God will do it for you. He will be the avenger. So, please, live above board. Don't defraud one another. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. I mean, obviously, he didn't call us unto uncleanness. But think about one of the struggles that we've seen in so many other letters, that if you rejoice in the grace of Christ, but then start to presume upon that grace, oh, might it feel like, hey, I can do anything I want? I've been justified. I've been sanctified. Oh, I can be unclean. Oh, God forbid, Paul would say. What he gave you the grace to do was not to increase your sin, but to increase your holiness. So move in that direction. Paul says, He therefore that despiseth, or rejecteth, you could say, or refuseth to keep the commandments, any of that. If you despise, you despise not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. We've seen that come up several times in this letter so far. It's not man, it's God. If you accept us, you're not accepting the word of man, you're accepting the word of God. Vice versa, if you're rejecting this message, it's not us, it's God that you've closed the door on. He then says in verse 9, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. You see, back in verse 6, if they're defrauding their brother, no, 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 what's lacking? Well, brotherly love. Here, as touching brotherly love, you don't need me to tell you anything about it. You know that. In fact, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Some things you don't have to be told. You don't have to be taught. Your conscience has already made it perfectly clear. God himself has taught you to love one another. That's obvious. That's how we live together in love. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren, which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Like again, he's back to this idea of increasing and abounding, of progressing. That's the best way to keep from falling back. You're moving forward. It's actually interesting here because you get a sense that your conscience is already telling you to love one another. But we're, and everybody knows that. Everyone in Macedonia, all the brethren, yeah. But if you can go beyond the norm, the gospel's meant to take you beyond natural goodness into the pure love of Christ, to do unnatural things beyond the minimum. So yes, keep growing in these attributes. They're absolutely essential. He also tells them that ye study to be quiet. And that's an odd phrase. Another way to put it is, make it your goal to live a quiet life. Or another way, strive earnestly to be at peace with all things. I mean, it's going to take some study to do that because sometimes we're up in arms over things. We're easily offended and and no wonder we lose our brotherly love. No, just study. Figure it out. Think it through. How can I be more quiet? How can I be a peaceable follower of Jesus Christ? So study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. Now, part of this might mean, well, you're a beleaguered minority. Small little church group there in Thessalonica. Lots of opposition from outside. Don't justify that opposition. 
Don't give them a reason to feel like you deserve that. Be, be quiet. Study to be quiet. Don't, don't ruffle feathers. Yes, let your light so shine, but don't shine it in their eyes and, and do it in a way that would be, that would be annoying to them. No, be, be more quiet. That was actually a struggle of the early saints when they got to Missouri. They didn't study to be quiet as much as they should have. Do your own business, Paul is telling them. Work with your own hands. That's what I was trying to do. Not to presume upon you. Not to just assume that you're going to come through for me. We're going to see this repeated again later in this letter. That you, you need to do your best to provide for yourself. Just like they, there are strings attached when, when people are making their donations. So that's why I don't want any. Well, if you're seeking Roman patronage, and that was a problem here, we'll see a little later, then those, that money, that financial support is coming with strings attached too. So just do your own business. Work with your own hands. Be honest with those around you. Make sure you'll, and, and then God will make sure that you lack for nothing. You can be self-sufficient as saints. That's what Paul is pushing. He then says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now here when he's speaking of sleeping, that's always the analogy for death. But it puts it in such a better term because, well, you wake up from sleep, right? And yes, you'll wake up from death also. That's the resurrection. And that's the hope that we have in Christ. So here what Paul is saying, and we're going to see a shift here, when he talks about this hope in the resurrection, he doesn't want them to be ignorant. You need to know this. Because if you're ignorant of the resurrection, then how will you feel about death? It, it isn't just a nap. It, it's, it's over, and they'll never wake up. So of course there's sorrow here. But that's the sorrow of those who have no hope. Think about the way Paul is phrasing this. When the world speaks of death, it's, they have great cause for sorrow. And no cause for hope, because it's over. Whereas with the gospel perspective, when you know the doctrine of the resurrection, when, like Paul, you've been a witness of it, you know Christ rose from the grave, you know he will bring us all up with him, then where does that leave us? Well, we still have some cause for sorrow. We miss them. But we have such cause for hope, because we will see them again someday. These are tears of separation, but not tears of termination, as Elder Maxwell used to say. Okay? So, as Paul is pivoting here to speak of the resurrection, notice how he couches it. Okay? Keep reading. For if we believe that Christ died and rose again. And that's a big if, isn't it? I mean, Paul knows it. He had the vision on the road to Damascus. But he's been bearing testimony of that resurrection. Do people receive it as the word of God? Has the Spirit given them that reassurance that it's true? I mean, this is the, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. What we're about to see all boils back down to that phrase. If we believe. And do we? Do the spiritual gut check. Look yourself in the mirror. Examine your faith. Know your faith as was said in the previous chapter. And do you believe? Because if we do, I love what Paul says here, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus 
will God bring with him? Our resurrection is bound up with the resurrection of Jesus. And if I believe in the one, why would I doubt the other? If Christ rose, why won't we? But also notice the context. We've seen hints of this in pretty much every chapter of 1 Thessalonians so far. It's always in second coming context. And here it is again. Those who sleep in Jesus, so the righteous dead, will God bring with him. Hmm. Christ is coming. He's going to bring them with him too. This is the resurrection of the just at the second coming of Jesus. And Paul's going to talk about this here. He says in the next verse, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So how's that for, for authority? Okay, These are not my words. These are God's. And in his name I testify of this, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Wait, huh? What do you mean there? So far, so good up to that last line where it's, okay, do you believe in the resurrection? Yes. Then if you believe in Christ's resurrection, you ought to believe in your own. Okay, I'm there. When's it going to happen? Well, when, at the coming of Christ, when he comes, the dead in Christ, those who sleep in Jesus, he'll bring them with him. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. But that last sentence is so strange. What about those that are alive and remain? I mean, now that you're talking, you've pivoted from resurrection to second coming. And there's two options, especially if we have this apocalyptic urgency and we think Jesus is coming any second. Because some will be dead, but others will be alive. In fact, for the Thessalonian saints, maybe reverse the order there. Because if they're feeling like Jesus is coming any second, then the thought is, we're going to be alive for that. But what about those who've already passed on? So that, that's the issue at hand that Paul is addressing in these next few verses. Alive or dead at the coming of Christ, what does that mean for the resurrection? When it says prevent, we start wondering, wait a minute, was that something on, on the Thessalonians' mind? Like... Will those that are alive prevent the resurrection of the dead? That, that, hmm. I don't know why that would cross their mind, but evidently that was something that they were worried about. There's even a JST here that says that they who are alive at the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them who remain unto the coming of the Lord who are asleep. And again, it suggests like, okay, it's okay. There's no interference here. Those that are alive aren't going to prevent those who've already passed on the resurrection will proceed as planned. Now, okay, interesting. Uh, the other thing to realize, though, is that prevent in the Greek here could also be translated precede. And that's an interesting way to phrase it. Like, will, which one will precede the other? It's not about preventing. It's all going to come out fine. But is there an order here? And if so, wh what is that order? Will the... Will those who are alive at the coming of Christ, will their change precede those who are resurrected at the coming of Christ? Interesting questions they have. And Paul is trying to address them. It, actually, back in 1 Corinthians 15, remember this? That chapter is like resurrection central. And Paul gives all kinds of evidence that it's true doctrine because the Corinthians were starting to doubt it. Again, if ye believe, as he asks the Thessalonians, but he also talked about some of the... There's differences in glory in the resurrection. Celestial, terrestrial, telestial. There's 
a there's a difference in timing of the resurrection, a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. But also there's this sense that if the resurrection applies to the dead, what does that mean about the living at the coming of Christ? That's where we're getting here in Thessalonians. To the Corinthians, he said, let me explain this mystery, because it is kind of a mystery. And the Thessalonians are still struggling with the, with the mystery of it all. But to the Corinthians, he said, the mystery is this. Not ever, everyone's going to be changed, but not everyone will have to die for that change to take place. Because some will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, from mortal to immortal, from corruption to incorruption. And what Paul is getting at there is, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and there's something about that coming that triggers a resurrection event, if you want to call it that, the dead in Christ will rise with him. The alive in Christ will be changed by him. And so, I mean, you can't even call that sleeping. It's less than a cat nap. It's a twinkling of an eye. Or as they say in Spanish, un abrir y cerrar de los ojos. A blink. That's how fast it is. It's like, whoa, did I fall asleep? I, it looked like, more like you just blinked. It was that fast. But it's like, yeah, but I feel so different. Well, it's because you've been changed. You, are, you now have experienced your, the, the resurrection without having really to taste of death along the way. Now, in some ways, again, think about the timing of the second coming. Because at the second coming, actually, let's go back preview of the first. When Jesus rose from the grave, his own resurrection, the righteous dead who had preceded him in death were risen as well. Uh, we saw that in the Gospels. We see it in the Book of Mormon. Okay? Well, in a similar way, when Jesus returns, those who have passed, the righteous who have passed on before, will return with him, return to life. That's when the resurrection of the just occurs. The resurrection of the unjust occurs at the end of the millennium. I mean, the simplest way, maybe it's even oversimplified, but the way to see this is the celestial resurrection happens at the beginning of the millennium, the coming of Christ. The telestial resurrection happens at the end. No wonder Satan is loose for a little season. There's people, again, the telestial souls that will listen to him. And then somewhere in the middle is where the terrestrial are resurrected. Okay? And so to think about... But, but again, where does that, what does that say about the living? Well, they're part of the resurrection of the just. They've been living celestial lives. They can be changed right at the start. I've actually had students over the years, some of whom have asked... There's a line in my patriarchal blessing that says, I will come forth in the morning of the first resurrection. And it's like, that's beautiful. That's great news. And they're like, well, what I'm wondering, though, is if I'm resurrected, does that mean I'm not going to be alive for the second coming? Because there is this millennial zeal and apocalyptic urgency on our part, too. We want to be here for it. And that's, an, that's a fascinating question. Are they reading too much into that phrase? It's like, oh, but if I'm resurrected, then I, does that say I'm not going to be twinkled? And if I'm not twinkled, then I must not have been alive for the second coming? It's almost like they're trying to use that phrase to pace their lives or to time, set out a timetable for the second coming. And my advice to them has always been, okay, don't read too much into that as far as second coming timing is concerned. Because again, whether you're alive or dead at that moment, you're either brought back to life or your life is changed in the twinkling of an eye. And all of that is called the, first, the, the morning of the first resurrection. Technically, it's a resurrection to be changed, even if you're just twinkled or blinked. So don't take that phrase as, 
evidence that don't take that phrase to suggest whether it's alive or dead at the second coming. Take it to reassure you that you'll, it's not alive or dead, it's good or evil. And that phrase is letting you know you'll be one of the good guys. Now remember, it's all conditional on your faithfulness. But as you are faithful, of course you're going to come forth in the morning of the first resurrection. Whether you were alive for the second coming and you're twinkled, or whether you, were, you passed on but are then raised. Does that make sense? I really hope so. This is kind of tricky. But remember, at the core of it all is that middle phrase, if ye believe. Hold on to that belief, Thessalonians. Hold on to that belief, Latter-day Saints. Because notice what Paul says next. And the end of this chapter is really where we get this apocalyptic emphasis. It really is second coming central here. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The book of Revelation describes it as trumpet blasts. And Paul gets to that as well. It'll, he'll descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. So here comes Michael with the armies of heaven to return, and with the trump of God. So yes, the brass section is going to be alive and well, <laughs> present, trumpeting as well. All of these phrases are meant to get our attention. The shout, the archangel, the trump. It's going to be clear when the, when the Savior returns. And when he does... The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Or as the JST puts it, caught up together into the clouds with them who remain. To meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And I love the ending there. If you're struggling with opposition and persecution, if you're just holding out hope to make it, then comfort each other with these words. These words of reassurance that the resurrection is real. These words of confirmation that Christ will come. If you're struggling, then please let our faith in Jesus strengthen you. Let it perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Let it comfort you. That, that to me is the great thing about scripture study. Or the words of living prophets. That it, they are, the word of God comes from the spirit and the spirit is the comforter. So comfort each other with things the comforter would confirm. Spread these letters. Read these epistles. Strengthen one another in Christ. Perfect each other's faith. And specifically, what are the words of comfort Paul is suggesting for the Thessalonians? That when Christ descends, so now we're talking specifically second coming, the shout and the trump and all of these things, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. Now, is there time between the two? Again, remember the question about preventing or preceding. Well, there does seem to be an order here, I guess. But notice what it's describing, being caught up together with them in the clouds. So the dead will be raised from the grave, but the alive, the living will be raised from the earth to meet Christ in the clouds. Now, what's this talking about? Now, this passage, the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is where our evangelical Christian friends find their doctrine of the rapture, capital R. And the rapture 
according to their theology, is this belief that the righteous will be caught up to meet Christ at the second coming. And what they're being caught up to is to be with him in the clouds. And their view of heaven is up in those, the clouds and the harps and the angels and so on. So they're being caught up to heaven. You've just been saved. And saved from what? Well, saved from the destruction of the wicked. Saved from what they call the tribulation, capital T. The way they kind of lay this out, and this is not all, all across the board, but, but a lot of evangelical Christians feel really strongly about the timetable of the second coming. Some have crunched the numbers and tried to find from scriptural prophecy, how long is this time of tribulation going to take? Think about the Battle of Armageddon, for example. And many of them boil it down to a seven-year period that they label the tribulation. And then the question is, will we have to endure that? If so, for how long? Uh, is that just when the wicked are destroyed? Will, where the, will the righteous be for all of that? And this view, it, it gets really technical. It's easy to get into the weeds here. Because there are pre-tribulationists uh, pre, pre and mid-tribulationists and post-tribulationists. And the question they're trying to decide is, when will the rapture occur? Will it happen pre-tribulation? That before those seven years of chaos erupt, the righteous will be caught up to heaven and they miss the whole thing. Hallelujah. Cross your fingers. And, and that's the, the most optimistic are pre-tribulationists. The most pessimistic are the post-tribulationists, where it's like, man, you're going to have to endure the whole seven years. But by the end of it, you made it. And now you can be celestialized. You can be caught up to heaven. The mid-tribulationists are kind of oh, hedging their bets, maybe. <laughs> but no, so somewhere in the middle. You'll have to endure part of it, but not the whole thing. And then you'll be caught up to heaven. Now, the catching up is what they call the rapture. And this has been, oh, it's been dramatized in series, a book series that's now become a movie series, complete with Kirk Cameron uh, as, as the, the lead actor. It's a series called Left Behind. And it was wildly popular on, in the book and to the point that Hollywood wanted to take a stab at it as well. And the idea of being left behind was uh, the tribulation is unfolding, the chaos and destruction at the end of the world. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, people disappear. It's like there, there's a clump of clothing that just collapses to the ground because the clothes are no longer occupied, whereas a second ago they were. And you can see why this would be so dramatic, because what if the person that just got caught up to heaven was your taxi driver, and now the car is going out of control? What if, your, what if the person raptured was your airline pilot, and now the plane's going down? And just these sparks of light are flying heavenward, and, and it's leaving empty clothing behind everywhere people look. But if there are people to look, oh, why was I left behind? Has my judgment been passed? Has my doom been sealed? You can see why Hollywood would love this. Well, where do Latter-day Saints come in on the idea of the rapture? Because we do believe in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What do we make of this? Well, remember, for us, we have an, an, a larger understanding of the fate of the earth as far as the millennium, Christ reigning upon the earth. If, they're, if the righteous are caught up to heaven right then, then who's left? And what does Jesus do during the millennial reign? Uh, we know from the Articles of Faith that we believe that Christ will reign personally upon the earth. There's millennium. We believe that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. That at the end of the millennium, the earth becomes the celestial kingdom. So our goal is not to stay in the clouds. 
is to keep our feet on the ground. Well, not keep them permanently. To rise above the wickedness of the world, but to return with Christ to a glorified earth. To be with him through that millennial reign. To be with him as the earth becomes the celestial kingdom. So what does that make of 1 Thessalonians 4? Well, yes, during the destruction of the wicked, the righteous are caught up to meet Christ as he descends. But in this reunion, we don't stay in the clouds. We return to the earth with Christ to be with him. Okay? So think of it in terms of, well, I'll give you a few, a few restoration hints. Because this is not just 1 Thessalonians 4. It's all over the place. Section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, for example. DNC 88 is like the, the Doctrine and Covenants mini book of Revelation. And since this is talking about the end times, it's a little an apocalyptic chapter, so to speak. Listen to this from 88, verse 95 to 98. The face of the Lord shall be unveiled. So there's second coming. And the saints that are upon the earth, who are alive, shall be quickened and be caught up to meet him. Quickened means to be made alive. Okay, They're alive and now they're made more alive. They're changed in the twinkling of an eye. And they're caught up to meet Christ as his face is revealed from heaven. Sound like the rapture of sorts? We don't use that term. We don't use the term tribulation. But there is an idea of us being caught up to meet God, or to meet Christ, in, in, as he descends. And they who have slept in their graves, so we already talked about the living who are changed, now about the dead, they shall come forth. For their graves shall be opened, and they also shall be caught up to meet him in the midst of the pillar of heaven. They are Christ's, the first fruits, they who shall descend with him first, and they who are on the earth and in their graves who are first caught up to meet him. So the Doctrine and Covenants would agree with 1 Thessalonians as far as the living, the dead, changed, raised, all caught up to meet the Lord. We actually see this in the very last verse of the Book of Mormon. There's a, there's a hint of 1 Thessalonians 4 in Moroni chapter 10. And the very last verse, verse 34, says this. Now I bid unto all farewell. Moroni is signing off here. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God. Until my spirit and body shall again reunite. So there's resurrection. And I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. Oh, so Moroni is, is planning on that ascent during the de descent of Jesus Christ. Now, again, so our, I guess the real question then is if we agree on that, again, we don't use the term rapture, but if we agree on this being raised up, part of the question is, are we talking literal or figurative? Are there piles of clothing left behind? Uh, exchanged for, for angelic robes? Or is there a literal, I mean, if I see someone starting to levitate, do I grab an ankle and hold on for dear life? That's the hard part. So much of the second coming and signs of the times and end of the world, it's, t it's hard to tell, is this literal or figurative? Is this something that happened physically or something that's happening spiritually? Again, and I, I, that's above my pay grade to say. If you think about the Book of Mormon as the scale model of the last days, for example, and see the destruction of the wicked in chapter 8, 9, 10 of 3 Nephi, 
Chapter 11 is when Christ comes. So there's our second coming preview. And how did the righteous survive all of the cataclysmic catastrophes, all those natural disasters? They rose above it, not physically, but spiritually. They were more righteous than the rest. They repented more, exercised greater faith. Is that the kind of rising above? That definitely is part. Might it also be coupled with a physical rise, raising to heaven to meet the Lord and then to descend with him? Very possible. But more than anything, and as far as how I live my day-to-day life, because this is interesting. We, we always think about second coming and, and like, when's it going to be? And will I be ready? My second coming to him might precede his second coming to me. In other words, I might die before he returns. And I don't know the day nor the hour for that either. So whether it's tribulation and rapture, or whether it's simply dying, what will I be ready for it? Will I have risen above the wicked world so that when Christ comes, I can come with him? That I can be on the earth and forever be with the Lord, as Paul said here. Okay? I mean, in some ways, think about it in light of Enoch's grand vision in Moses chapter 7. And talk about a heavenly reunion. Look at Moses 7, 62 to 63. And righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. So there does seem to be a connection between heaven and earth, even on, on these terms. And righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare and holy city that my people may gird up their loins, there's the armor of God, and be looking forth for the time of my coming. We're ready for it whenever, whenever it occurs. For there shall be my tabernacle and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. And the Lord said unto Enoch, then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there. And we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. That is the reunion of Zion from below meeting Zion from above. That does seem to suggest a a reunion in the clouds. Uh, To think about the sign of the rainbow that wasn't just given to Noah, it was given to Enoch first. That just as Zion was caught up to heaven so will Zion return from heaven. This is a full rainbow, okay? Earth to heaven, back to earth. That describes that second coming glory as well. Zion can be brought because Zion has been built. May the kingdom of God go forth, that's the earthly, that the kingdom of heaven may come, that's the heavenly. There's something powerful about this first letter of Paul to point us forward to the final day when the Lord returns and we return with him. I love the end of 1 Thessalonians 4. What a powerful lead into 1 Thessalonians 5, though, because what do I do in the meantime? Uh, I don't know how long it's going to be, but how am I supposed to live so that I'm ready, so that I can rise above the wicked world, tribulation and all? Well, notice chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to get very 
Uh, we're going to get down to brass tacks. We're going to get very pragmatic and practical. And there's advice and counsel here of how to navigate these last days of trouble and gloom. Chapter 5, verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. And times and seasons was the name of the church's newspaper in Nauvoo. It's like, what time is it? What season is it? Is it the 11th hour? Is midnight approaching with the coming of the bridegroom? What season is it? Is summer soon to be passed and harvest over? What, when are we living based on the divine clock? Well, Paul already said, you don't need me to tell you anything. You don't need me to write you about that. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. I mean, how many times did the Lord say that in Matthew 24 and 25? We don't know the day or the hour. We, he's going to come like a thief, and you better be watching so that he doesn't break in when you're unawares. You better be wise virgins with your vessels full of oil. You know that. You know it perfectly. So, when they shall say, peace and safety, be careful, because then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So we're back to this maternal metaphor. A woman in labor, travail, remember that was Paul trying to help these babes in Christ grow up in God? Well, just like you don't know exactly when the baby's coming, you don't know exactly when the Lord's coming either. Are you ready? Now, when he said, careful about those who say peace and safety, in some ways, those were Roman terms. This was the Pax Romana, uh, the Roman peace. And as long as you pay tribute to Caesar and do what you're asked, you will be given peace and safety. We have a mighty army to the point that no other, we are the world superpower, and we will keep you safe from any kind of problems. Well, Paul's saying, don't believe that. So in some ways, the Roman Empire is part of the problem, not part of the solution. They cannot guarantee you peace and safety when the destruction of the wicked occurs. So don't put your eggs in Caesar's basket. Align with Christ and prepare for his coming whenever it happens. Again, him coming to you, you going to him. You don't know when it's going to occur. He says in verse 4, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're not completely in the dark here. There have been signs of the times given you. In fact, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. It's like, come on, you Thessalonian saints, steer clear of the darkness, stand in the light, be spiritually awake and alert and ready, come what may. In verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober. In other words, take this seriously. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Oh, this is like Paul's rough draft on the armor of God. <laughs> he, he perfected it a bit before he, turned, before he wrote to the Ephesians. But here in this first letter, it's similar, it's similar equipment, breastplate. Cover your heart, your desires with faith and love. Cover your, your head, your thoughts with the hope of salvation. Prepare yourself for this. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. 
That's not what he wants. He doesn't want us to be destroyed among the wicked. That's why he's called us out to better things. He hasn't appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a teacher who wants us to succeed, not fail. So he's helping us prepare for the exam. Speaking of Jesus, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, so whether you're going to need to be resurrected or twinkled, alive or dead, doesn't matter. Either way, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. It's like what he said at the end of chapter 4. Comfort each other with these words. Build each other up. Whatever happens, whenever Jesus comes, stay faithful. Stay connected to God. Stay connected to each other. We're all in this thing together. Let's prepare collectively. In verse 12, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. I mean, do you know your local leaders very well? Do we know the general authorities well enough to trust that they have our best interests at heart? When he says, know them which labor among you, I mean, again, if there's rumblings of apostasy everywhere, is there a sense that you need to be able to know the true messengers so you can discern and, and guard against the false messengers? If part of the signs of the times are false Christs and false teachers and false preachers, false prophets, and the deception of the very elect, then yeah, you better know them which labor among you. We need to sustain them, or here, esteem them. And not because of just who they are, but rather, like he said, for their work's sake. It's the position, not the person, that matters. But to know the person that's in those positions, I, I love reading biographies of apostles and prophets. It always humbles me, realizing how the Lord has prepared them and how willing they've been to be prepared. These are incredible servants of God. And to be inspired by the way they've lived their lives, to be inspired by their works, and so for those works' sake, wanting to follow them as they point me to God. With that faith and that perspective, Paul is going to begin giving them all kinds of rapid-fire advice. It's these little nuggets of wisdom and these really short verses. Do this, and how about that, and work on this. And these are your marching orders as you prepare for the coming of Christ. He says in verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Be patient towards all men. Great advice here. If people are struggling, if they're unruly, kind of out of control, warn them. Help them come back. If people are feeble-minded, they're struggling, and can you blame them? There's all kinds of persecution, but comfort them. If people are spiritually weak, then support them. Perfect what is lacking in their faith, okay? And across the board, just be patient toward each other, toward yourselves, toward God, because it's going to be a while before the second coming. Be patient. He goes on, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. So, even though they're persecuting you, don't persecute them back. Don't render evil for evil. Somehow, accept it. Metabolize it. Swallow that darkness and then give forth light. 
In fact, despite what you're up against, rejoice evermore. How's that for positivity despite persecution? Pray without ceasing. You're going to need all the help you can get. In everything, give thanks. Gratitude will get you across the finish line. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Beautiful advice. I mean, that's the full measure of discipleship right there. Not overzealousness. No, you're in the Goldilocks zone. But you are preparing yourself well. You're living good lives. In fact, he goes on in verse 19. Quench not the spirit. And I love that advice. It's like, don't rain on someone else's spiritual parade. Don't put out someone else's fire of faith. Don't interfere with someone else's spiritual experiences. If the Spirit is present in their lives, do not quench it. When it's present in yours, let it stay. Don't quench the Spirit. Despise not prophesying. And since we've been talking the second coming so much, you might assume that that's foretelling the future. Well, it might be part of it. Don't despise that. But I think prophesying, we've talked about this before, it's not just foretelling, it's forth-telling. And that is typically the type that we despise. That we don't want to be told that we're doing something wrong. We don't want to be called out or, or told to repent. And Paul is telling them, when someone gives you hard sayings, when a prophet actually acts like a prophet and tells it like it is, don't be offended by that. Don't despise it. Now, how will you tell? Next phrase. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. And I love that contrary. Because if I prove all things, it's a sense of, I'm going to be open to anything and everything. I have an open mind and an open heart, but at the same time, I've got to hold fast to that which is good, which suggests that not everything is. So, yes, I'll be open, but I'm also going to be selective about what I hold on to. This actually made me rethink the parable of the gospel net, because I've always pictured that in terms of people. Cast out the word, spread out the net, and bring in fish of every kind. Some will stay faithful, some won't. But don't judge them before you, they even get a chance to decide for themselves. Okay? And, that, and that's true. That's a great interpretation of that parable. But based on this, about proving all things, but holding fast to that which is good, I wonder if the gospel net can also mean principles, not just people. You remember Ephesians 1, if part of the job of the final dispensation is to gather together in one all things in Christ, ooh, there's a broad gospel net. But as I bring in flowers from other people's gardens and bring in other people's ideas and ideologies and philosophies and, and perspectives, I do need to be discerning about which ones I'll hold on to, which ones are good enough to keep. Okay? Then, next phrase, abstain from all appearance of evil. And I love that one. Now, appearance in the Greek might simply mean form. So avoid every form of iniquity, no matter what form it takes. Remember King Benjamin, I can't describe all the things you can do wrong. I mean, people are creative. But here, avoid them all. If it, if it is evil, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But I am grateful for the way the King James translators rendered this, because appearance can mean a couple of things. One is the, the passive form of appear. It looks a certain way. It appears and so to abstain from all appearance of evil, to me, is great advice. Not just don't do wrong. Don't look like you're doing wrong. Because some people might not be discerning, and they might assume that you are guilty of things 
that you're not guilty of. Remember what we saw in Romans and Corinthians about eating meat at the Babylonian barbecue, uh, at the, the pagan party. And Paul's deciding, I'm not even going to appear to be evil, if that's, how people might, if that's what people might assume. I remember when I was a teenager, and for some reason, bubblegum cigarettes were popular. And you buy a pack of gum that looks like a pack of cigarettes. And sure enough, there are long cylinders that look like cigarettes. I think they even put powdered sugar at the end. So if you blew on the, on the, the gum, a little puff of powdered sugar would come out. You know, it's as close to looking like you're smoking as you can. And I remember at the time just thinking there was something off there. And I ended up stumbling upon 1 Thessalonians 5. And that verse, oh, I don't want to appear to be evil. I might not be doing anything wrong, but... Am I trying to look like I am? That's weird. So no, I'm going to abstain from that appearance. And if that's the passive form of the verb, think about the active form of the verb. When it's not just things look a certain way, they appear to be, but no, how about they appear? They show up. They kind of pop out of the shadows. And I need to abstain from that appearance of evil as well. Where might evil appear to me? And I want to avoid those kinds of places. I want to stand in holy places and not be moved because I want to avoid the appearance of evil. With that advice behind him, Paul can then give some beautiful promises. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, the second coming context again. Oh, if you could be all in, wholly sanctified. I mean, yes, the holy as in H-O-L-Y, but to be wholly, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely sanctified, absolutely prepared for the coming of Christ. You've looked in every dark corner and swept off, swept out every crumb I am ready to rise above the wickedness of the world and rejoice in the coming of Christ. Verse 24, Paul then ends this letter. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. We've seen Paul give that kind of testimony before. What the Lord wills, he works. Remember that? What he plans, he performs. This is the kind of Lord we worship. He's faithful. He's called us, and you heeded the call. Well, he's going to do it. He's the author of your faith. He started writing, but he's also the finisher of your faith. He'll get you to the conclusion. So follow him. Paul then says, brethren, pray for us. After all, I've been praying for you this whole letter. But pray for us. I know I'll need heaven's help, just like you do. You'll also need each other's help. So greet all the brethren with unholy kiss or JST, and holy salutation. We're in this together after all. And then finally, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. He'd already said it. Spread this word. Share these thoughts to comfort one another. And that's what he's trying to do. I imagine most Thessalonian saints wanted a personal copy of this letter. Something to read and reread whenever times got hard. In our own case, it's worth reading and rereading as well. In fact, 
if I can do what I've been doing with every letter of Paul, rereading a few of the most celestial one-liners he gave us. And I do pray that we can be comforted through these phrases, especially if we can let the Spirit write them on the fleshy tables of the heart. Here's our rapid review of 1 Thessalonians, and then we'll turn to 2 Thessalonians. Your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. We were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. For ye are our glory and joy, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. I sent to know your faith. We live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Direct our way unto you. Establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness. God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Walk honestly toward them that are without. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. The Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Know them which labor among you. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Rejoice evermore. Quench not the spirit. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Paul knows that Christ will do it. He's been doing amazing things with Paul ever since their first contact on the road to Damascus. To those Thessalonian saints and to us, will we hold out faithful despite the persecution all around us? Will we overcome the beating sun by tapping into the living water? Will we perfect what is lacking in our faith? And will we pray on behalf of those who are struggling that God will direct us unto them? I pray that's the case. We are so much closer to the second coming than the Thessalonian saints ever were. And so in Paul's hope to prepare them, he's hoping to prepare us too. I testify Christ will come. As we'll see in just a moment in 2 Thessalonians, there are some things that have to happen first, but they are happening. The time is quickening. And before long, I pray, Christ will come. 
and we'll be prepared for him. First Thessalonians was meant to get us ready. Turn our thoughts heavenward. Lift our eyes upward. Wondering when will the veil part? When will the Savior descend? When will thy coming be? And will we be ready for it? Our job in this final dispensation is to prepare the earth for the coming of Christ. And if 1 Thessalonians has told us that he's, that he's coming as a thief in the night and that we need to be prepared for whenever it occurs, 1 Thessalonians in some ways was meant to push the gas pedal down, get us ready to move forward. 2 Thessalonians, meanwhile, has a bit of breaks to it. There's a Goldilocks zone we need to stay in when it comes to the second coming. And our zeal needs to be tempered by patience. Uh, we need to endure as, uh, alongside our need to prepare. When will he come? We don't know. We're getting closer, as I said. But as we turn to 2 Thessalonians, there are some major things that have to happen along the way. And so crack the whip in first, pull the reins in second. I see this often when I see people pondering second coming. And there's a, there's a Goldilocks zone. I worry about those that are so apathetic that they're not worried that he's ever going to come with a white prepare. And others who are overzealous and are starting to make timelines and this has happened, so check the box and this is what's next. And now we're getting super specific. Remember the Millerites in Joseph Smith's day? They were putting down a day and hour, and they were selling their farms and, and going out ready for the coming of Christ, and he didn't come. They called that the great disappointment in American religious history. And we must not have a great disappointment within ourselves. We need to be prepared, but we need to be patient. And so let's balance 1 Thessalonians and 2. With that, let's dive into 2 Thessalonians. It's a brief letter, so this will be a, a much briefer portion of our lesson. But notice how Paul begins, as usual, with his salutation. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, same trio we had before, add the JST, the servants of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, so there's their authority, unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So far, second letter sounds a whole lot like the first. Now notice what Paul is grateful for, though. We saw his gratitude at the beginning of the first letter. Here's what he's thankful for with the passage of a little more time. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Remember that's what Paul had been, had been praying for in 1 Thessalonians? You're doing great. And the best way to, to not slip backwards is to keep surging forward. So increase and abound in your faith, in your charity. Your love of God, your love of neighbor. They nailed it. <laughs> Talk about a follow-up. Remember Timothy went up to check on them, see what their faith was, perfect the parts that were still lacking? Well, it's been working because their faith is growing. Of course they're not diminishing then. Of course, there's no backsliding. They're moving forward. In verse 4 through 6, Paul says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. And we saw hints of that in the first letter as well. This is tough. It's hard to be a, a, a church member, a Christian in Thessalonica. 
But the saints have been faithful. They have been patient despite their persecution, just as Paul had encouraged them. He says, which is a manifest token, or we could say clear evidence or obvious proof of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Mm, that ending there. <laughs> it's, yeah, God's going to recompense your persecutors. And they'll pay the piper for what they've done. In the meantime, though, he will reward you for what you are doing. And so your patience, your perseverance, I know what you are suffering. God will more than make it up to you. In verse 7, Paul says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. God is ultimately the source of all rest, all peace. It comes from the Prince of Peace himself. But for him to gather a people out of a chaotic culture, a wicked world, and bring them to a place of peace and rest, I love this gentle invitation on Paul's part. This is the cherishing mother. This is the nurturing father. And he's inviting them. If you're troubled, this is all ye who are, who are weary and heavy laden, Come unto me. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So if you are troubled, rest with us. I don't know a more beautiful missionary invitation to those that are struggling in, in their spiritual ignorance, in their physical difficulty, in their mental anguish, or emotional pain, if you are troubled, please rest with us. And rest when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This rest is in second coming context too. That's when the earth itself can be at rest. That's what Enoch was wondering in his vision. That's what the earth was pleading for. When will I find rest? Well, when Christ comes again. That's the ultimate rest, the millennial rest. When he comes, when he's revealed from heaven, when his mighty angels are there with him, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, so far, that, that's rough. That's warning the wicked. There's no rest for them. And so that's, that's powerful and punishing language, just the, the, the fear. I mean, this is the great and dreadful day of the Lord, right? And there's the dreadful part. But then how about the great? This passage ends with this phrase. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony unto you was believed in that day. You believe now. Will you still believe then? If so, then when Christ comes, what will you be doing? Well, you will be glorifying him by the way you live. And you will be admiring him for all that he's done. I, I love that sense of... You ever... I think of your childhood hero. 
And if you ever got to meet them in person, and it's just this shock and awe. Uh, you, you saw them somewhere, you got their autograph, whatever it was, and you're just admiring them. A mortal hero worship is nothing. They are so undeserving of that glory and that admiration when compared to Christ. But to think about how the saints gather together in rest, looking at their Savior return and being full of wonder. Admiring here can, can also be translated to marvel or to wonder. And we will be marveling <laughs> at the marvelous work and a wonder that the Lord has performed. In verse 11, Paul says, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. We want you on the great side, not the dreadful side. We, we pray that he will fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The way he put it there, the good pleasure of his goodness, may he fulfill that. The work of faith, may he give you power. Other translations make that a little more clear. In the New International Version, for example, this prayer is that God, by his power, may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Or the New Living Translation, may he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. That's a beautiful second coming prayer. When the Savior returns and I'm standing there with jaw dropped and knees bent, admiring him, can you picture him admiring in our own little way, admiring what we've tried to do for him? Well done, thou good and faithful servants. Everything your faith prompted you to do, I blessed. And see how that work's been magnified. In the second chapter, Paul puts all of this in, in perspective of timing. As I said before, if 1 Thessalonians was the gas pedal, 2 Thessalonians is a bit of a break. Not to slow down your progress. Keep abounding and increasing. Keep doing those things your faith is inspiring you to do. God will be with you in the process, but it's going to be a long process. So don't slow down, but pace yourself. Be patient in your hope, like we saw at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's one of the most famous passages. If we know anything from Thessalonians, this is the part we typically know. We Latter-day Saints anyway. Notice what he says at the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is second coming context as usual. Every chapter has a nod to that. So by his coming and by our gathering together unto him. And I love that Paul is connecting the two. There seems to be this horizontal gathering, but it's put in context of the vertical gathering. We're gathering Israel on both sides of the veil because we're trying to gather us all back to God when Christ returns. He's gathering downward. We're gathering upward. We're gathering outward. We're trying to all come together in Christ. So I honestly think if we were to do more of our gathering, our missionary work, our temple work, with an eye to the second coming, 
there'd be a sense of urgency. There'd be a sense of, of timing and preparing the earth for the coming of Christ. But as Paul puts it, I'm beseeching you with thoughts of the second coming, with ideas of the gathering, I'm beseeching you that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, or the JST, as by letter, except ye receive it from us. He's, he's really worried about something. He's afraid that the, the Thessalonian saints are being shaken, and they're being troubled, and false spirits, or false words, or false letters from false prophets, and I'm just really worried about you guys. So I'm beseeching you not to be moved, not to take those other things seriously. Well, okay, you've got my attention. What is it that you're worried about? Oh, yeah, sorry, forgot to finish verse 2. As that the day of Christ is at hand. That's what he's worried about. I'm afraid that you guys are so urgent, and that's a good thing, that your zeal might turn to overzealousness, or your hope might turn to impatience, and with some thought that the day of the Lord is already here. At hand could be translated, or can be interpreted one of two ways. At hand either means it's almost here. You picture somebody with a, with a big board in front of them standing on a street corner in New York City, and they're kind of shouting out warnings to the wicked world saying, the end is near. All right, the, the, the end of the world is at hand. It's almost right around the corner, okay? That's one op option. The other, at hand, could really mean it's right here in the hand. It's already happened. The day of the Lord has occurred. It's, it's interesting because this is a far-flung branch, far away from church headquarters back in Jerusalem. And if Jesus lived and died and was resurrected in Israel, is that where his second coming is going to occur? Has it already occurred? And there's perhaps a sense among some Thessalonian saints, did we miss something? Because we're living in the wrong spot. If Jesus came as a thief in the night, did the night already pass? And I wasn't, I mean, I was trying to watch, but I, I wasn't there for it. And so what Paul is warning them about is don't take any of those rumors seriously. He hasn't returned yet. You haven't missed anything, okay? Because if you think it's already done, do we get overzealous? Do we, or do we just throw in the towel and say, why do I even try anymore? Right? There's some, some dangers here. It actually makes me think of the Kirtland Temple dedication, which was such a Pentecostal outpouring and visitations and visions and angels and the Savior himself. I mean, if that's not the second coming, I don't know what it is. He came, right? And... I mean, I haven't been tempted in days, so it sure seems like the, the, the devil's been, been bound. I could take another thousand years of this. Awesome. There were some saints in Kirtland that honestly thought the millennium had begun. Oh, hate to break it to you. Uh, enjoy the experience. Quench not the spirit, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians. But yeah, you've still got a ways to go. Okay? There, there seems to be a similar caution here. Don't be troubled. Don't be shaken. Stay firm. Because again, there's going to be a Goldilocks zone we have to find. We've got to prove the contraries of urgency and patience, of gas pedal and brake, right? You need both to drive. And it reminds me, honestly, of section 51 of the Doctrine and Covenants. When the saints are told, you've you got to move to the Ohio. And, but, and he tells them from the very beginning, 
it's only going to be for a little season. That's, that's the short side of things. But then he says, same revelation, DNC 51, but act on the land as for years, and it will turn to thy good. Wait, but if it's only going to be for a little season, I don't, I don't even want to unpack my bags. Well, unpack them. In fact, set down roots, make friends, make a difference. Because there is this balancing act we need to be able to handle. And it's going to help us navigate the last days, however long or short they might be. You with me on this? Be ready for the second coming. But don't get so impatient that, that you're not ready to... Well, I've heard this even said by people like Boyd K. Packer. Elder Packer used to warn people, plan on having children and grandchildren. Get an education. Prepare for a profession. Prepare for the long haul. Because if you're not, then you'll be shaken in mind, and you'll be troubled, and you'll be unprepared. You have to be prepared whether Jesus comes soon or late. There's a balance. You've got to strike here. Okay? If you've ever seen in the, in the side mirror on your car, objects in a mirror are closer than they appear. Remember that scene in Jurassic Park, right? You're like, oh, yikes. Well, when it comes to the second coming, it's usually the opposite. Objects in mirror are further than they appear. Your faith, your zeal, uh, your urgency is making it seem like it's right around the corner. The early saints felt that deeply. Some even went beyond themselves and said something like, oh yeah, five, ten years max, Jesus is coming. The, the, this is the latter day saints after all. And so, yeah, we're, this is the end. And the coming is nigh. It's like, ooh, careful. You can picture Paul rolling over in his grave like, yeah, you're, you're going to be shaken. Uh, when the time passes and Christ still hasn't come, couple your zeal with patience and remain prepared. Best way to do it is to continue to abound and increase. And you have time to do it. Okay, That'll keep you from falling back. But then he gets even more specific about, well, what are we waiting for then? If, if the time is nigh, but not nigh yet, not, not, not nigh enough, what, what still has to happen? Incredibly famous passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 through 4. Let no man deceive you by any means. And remember, deception is one of the designing signs of the times, but it's going to push you out of the Goldilocks zone in either direction. They're either going to deceive you that Jesus is never going to come, or deceive you that he's, he's coming tomorrow. So avoid that. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, or at least wants to be. Now the end of that passage, we typically stop reading after verse 3, but in verse 4 there is this caution about this man of sin, this son of perdition. There's some major opposition coming, coming at some point. You thought it was bad facing oh, the people that were persecuting Paul and driving him out of town. You thought it was bad what Jason had to deal with with the magistrates there in Thessalonica. It's going to get worse. Sorry to break it to you. We've got little men and women of sin, but the man of sin is waiting in the wings. And he will be revealed before Christ is. 
before Christ comes to usher in the reign of righteousness, there will be a reign of wickedness beyond anything we've seen before. That is the falling away first that Paul prophesies in verse 3. Now, in the King James, there's some italics there. And italics isn't to get, catch, catch our attention. No, it's to admit that the King James translators had to invent some English words to make the English make sense. But those words weren't in the original Hebrew. Well, without them, it just suggests that there's going to be this falling away. It doesn't put it in second coming context quite so clearly. But it's what he's been talking about. It's what he said in verse 1 and 2. So the King James translators were right to include that. The JST actually makes it crystal clear by saying, For there shall come a falling away first. That eliminates the need for the italics, but it makes it crystal clear that in context of second coming, verse 1 and 2, there will be a falling away first, verse 3. And what will that falling away include or entail? Well, the manifestation of wickedness like you've never seen it before. That's verse 4. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we love this verse because we see it as the prophecy of the great apostasy. And actually, the Greek word translated here as falling away is apostasia. Can you hear the cognate? I loved that in Spanish on my mission when I'd read it, and it said apostasia. I didn't realize that it was more than Spanish. It was Greek as well. But it's that falling away. Now, like I said, Latter-day Saints love this verse because it does prophesy the apostasy, which necessitates the restoration. But for this, we need to be a little careful. Okay? I've taught this multiple times before that too often, I think, we paint such a bleak picture of the apostasy to make the, to make the restoration look all the better that we end up throwing Catholicism and Protestantism completely under the bus. And we need to be careful about that. We saw in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we'll see it in the book of Revelation later on this year, that Catholicism and Protestantism helped preserve the woman in the wilderness so that she could come forth again when the time was right. I will forever be grateful for Catholicism's preservation of Scripture and Protestantism's re-emphasis on Scripture. Without their help, I don't know if James 1.5 would have been around to spark the restoration with Joseph Smith. So I am grateful for the light that survived the dark ages. It was there. Okay? The church was not there in its fullness. It, the gospel was not there in its, in its complete form. A, a, authority had been lost. There was no ongoing revelation. Something happened. Or scripture would have kept growing. Prophets and apostles would have been kept being called. The church would have continued on as it was in New Testament time. But that didn't happen. There was a falling away first. And in fact, we've seen Paul... There's an irony here. Paul fought the apostasy with every letter, even though he knew it would ultimately be a losing cause. Not entirely, right? There are truths preserved throughout it all. But the apostasy did occur. To the Corinthians, he's warning, no, quit doubting resurrection. It's true. To the Galatians, don't slip back into the law of Moses. No, you've emerged from that. Yeah, every letter, there seems to be something on the people's mind that is pulling them away. There are little fallings away everywhere. And now Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, what's their concern? Oh, second coming is right around the corner. So, ooh. <laughs> 
Not quite. Ah, objects in a mirror are further than they appear. There's going to be a falling away first. In fact, I'm kind of seeing it happen right around me. If you end up getting shaken and leave. So be patient. Hold on to your hope and your faith. We're going to be here for a while. Okay? Now, I do want to say something about the apostasy, though. As long as we can keep it in, in proper perspective and not do an injustice to all the good that Catholicism and Protestantism has done. But I do want to honor what Paul is prophesying here, because there is a falling away. And when I was on my mission, for example, Catholics particularly had a real hard time swallowing that principle. Some of them were like, oh yeah, that's obvious, and, and where's the truth? And wow, wow this, here it is? Well, let me come. And they came running. But others that were firmer in their previous faith, it's like, apostasy? What are you talking about? No way. What did Jesus say to Peter in Matthew 16? You're the rock, and, and the, I'm going to build my church upon that rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hmm, well, how do we reconcile that prophecy with this prophecy from Paul? That's tricky. Now, for us, it would be, well, there was an apostasy and a loss of authority and no more prophets and apostles and no more revel ongoing revelation for the church as a whole. Individual re revelation, yes, continued. But institutional revelation, no. There were no prophets and apostles to pick up the phone when it rang. But what's interesting, I remember, I remember meeting one Catholic that really knew his stuff. And I shared 2 Thessalonians 2 and said... Paul said there would be a break in the chain at some point. And so if you're saying there's never been a break in the chain, then there still has to be one. So it's that there's either already been an apostasy or there will be. And either way, there has to be a restoration. And he said, well, not so fast. There has been an apostasy. There was a falling away. And I'm like, what? No, you said Catholicism has made, there's no breaks in the chain. An unbroken links all the way down from, from Peter, who you say is the first pope, to the pope currently, Pope Francis in our day, who I love, by the way. He's amazing. But to, to think about what, what, what this Catholic said, said, no, no, no. We still have the unbroken chain, but there was a falling away. It's called the Protestant Reformation. And I'm like, what? I'd never heard it put that, like that. But for Catholics to see in Martin Luther, ooh, was he the man of sin? Was he the son of perdition? Did he set himself up as God? And many Catholics would say, yes. He separated himself from the Catholic magisterium. He didn't want to follow the Pope. He thought that, hey, any individual with access to the Word of God can, can become their own interpreter. It's a priesthood of all believers. And it's like, wow, if that's not a usurpation of divine authority, I don't know what it is. If that's not somebody trying to set themselves up as God over the Word, instead of allowing God to reveal that Word to His servants. Now we'd say, but yeah, prophets and apostles. Is that the magisterium? Is that, how does that work? But I was blown away by that perspective of, wow. They, say, they can check the box on 2 Thessalonians 2 and say, yep, there was a massive falling away from Catholicism in the 16th century. Whoa, okay, what do I do now? It was then that I fell in love with Amos chapter 8, which we studied last year in our Old Testament study. Because Amos 8 speaks of a falling away first as well, but it, it refers to it as a famine in the land. 
not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. So it's a spiritual famine. It's an apostasy. But what I love about the Amos version is it tells us not only that there will be an apostasy, it tells us how widespread the apostasy is. Is it simply that the Catholic Church remained true and uh, firm and faithful the whole time, but then Protestants fell away from it? Or is it that, the, that Christianity itself, though it did preserve essential truths, institutionally there was a falling away to the point that God was not revealing new institutional truth through authorized prophets and apostles. And the way Amos says it is, during that famine, people will be so desperate for food, they will be running to and fro, from sea to sea, and from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, and will not find it. Oh, that sounds a, w a lot more widespread than, we've always been here, doors are still open, lights are still on, but some people have, have wandered away from us. Now, we've still got plenty of food in the, in the pantry. They've just left the kitchen. That's not what Amos described. In my old seminary days, I would tell my students, there is a king-size uh, Snickers bar hidden somewhere in the classroom. If you can find it, you can eat it. And they're like, seriously? I'm like, yeah, if you can find it, it's yours. You can eat it right here in front of everybody. Rub it in. And they jump out of their chairs, usually the guys, and, and start searching. Well, when their initial efforts were unfruitful, they'd give up. And I'd say, okay, fine. You're giving up already. You must not be that hungry. What if I put you under lockdown, sealed the doors, and said, we're stuck? How long would you go before you're really hungry? Again, the guys would be like, oh, I'm that hungry already. Yeah. But I'm talking desperate. Give it a day, two days, three days. Now, by now... How hungry are you? How desperate are you? And therefore, how intensely are you looking? After a couple days, you would be tearing, off the, tearing out the, the ceiling tiles to see if it's hidden up there somewhere. Ripping up carpet. Tearing apart the piano to see if it's in the, in the strings somewhere. You would leave no stone unturned because you're going to die if you don't find it. I then said to them, uh, forgive me but there's no Snickers bar in here. And they're like, what? You said... I, I, no, I said, if you can find it, you can eat it. It just couldn't be found. Now, your efforts to find it were uh, not that intense. But let's say you were starving to death. If on the third, fourth day, whatever, if you still hadn't found the Snickers bar, despite tearing apart the roof tiles, uh, or the ceiling tiles, and the, and the piano... If you still couldn't find it, what might you safely assume about the Snickers? That it's not here. That try as I might, and I did, I couldn't find it. Well, if someone like Amos 8 says is so desperate for the word of God that they search sea to sea, running to and fro, they would have found the institutional church if it were present. But it wasn't. It was lost. And though beautiful truths were preserved so that the woman could be nourished in the wilderness, it was in the wilderness where she was. Not out in the open, receiving revelation, giving birth to the kingdom of God. Like I said, we'll see that analogy or that metaphor when we get to the book of Revelation. But 
there was a falling away, far beyond the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, in fact, was part of the solution, though it introduced some additional problems too. Either way, there needs to be a full restoration. And that began with Joseph Smith. I testify of that. It's amazing to see what was lost and what we regained through his ministry. So apostasia, falling away. Now, this is the institutional version. Will there be individual versions too? Well, sadly, yes. And that's what the Thessalonian saints are fighting against and that Paul is trying to guard them against. That's what we're fighting against. We see a falling away in our day as well as those who once were faithful no longer are, and they are falling out of the faith. How do we help them? Has there been a man of sin revealed? Is the son of perdition at work in our day? For that, by the way, we need to be careful too. Instead of trying to identify a single person to check the box, like Martin Luther, or like whomever else, Take it more in a general description of those that are trying to set themselves up as false gods and false Christs and false preachers and false teachers, just like we see among the signs of the times. Those men and women of sin seem to be work at work all around us, and they are making it harder and harder to hold on to truth. No wonder there continue to be fallings away that we need to guard against. Notice what Paul says about it in verse 5. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? We saw that same idea back in 1 Thessalonians. Like, you should have seen this coming. I warned you from the very start. So, didn't I tell you this? This shouldn't be news to you. We've talked about it before. If anything, I guess this is proof that we need constant reminders. And that holds true for us as well. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now that's incredibly confusing. There's a JST that clarifies it, but we even need clarification for the clarification. The JST says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, and he it is who now worketh, and Christ suffereth him to work, until the time is fulfilled that he shall be taken out of the way. Clear as mud yet? Now, what the JST clarifies is the identity of the him or the he that is being referred to here. Because it's a trick. What's the antecedent of that pronoun? Who's withholding whom? And the idea of there's somebody reining something in. Now, the JST clarifies that he already worketh and Christ suffereth him to work. Oh, okay. So the one that's that's at work, must be that man of sin, that son of perdition. Satan is perdition himself. He's the ultimate man of sin. And, I mean, the counterpart of man of holiness himself. So Satan, man of sin himself, how much is he manifesting himself? How hard is he working? How much free reign has he been given? This kind of the, the question to, to ponder here. And the JST lets us know that Christ... Uh, to some point, is suffering him to work. I mean, he hasn't been fully revealed like we'll see in the ultimate falling away. But in the meantime, Christ is... I mean, in the meantime, there's a, there's a mystery of iniquity going on. 
And I actually love that phrase. It's one of the reasons I love being a historian because it kind of makes sense where, how we got into this mess. You start to see antecedents of the iniquity all around us. And, oh, this philosophy led to that behavior. And then to justify it, this philosophy came on. And then, oh, okay, no one. Yikes. No wonder we're in the mess that we're in. Iniquity is not such a mystery then. But again, under the surface, if we don't have the eyes to see, there really is this mystery of iniquity. And Paul here says, it doth already work. I mean, no wonder we're receiving opposition and persecution. Okay, there's hard things going on and wicked people and the fornication and people saying that it's fine and, and you've got to know better. Abstaining from every appearance of evil and so on. Okay, that mystery is already at work. But God has been withholding, been reining the adversary in. It's bad, but it's not as bad as it, it's going to be. And the day will come where he who letteth will let. And that's Christ. Christ is allowing some, but reigning in. And it's, it's this Goldilocks zone of, of some sort that the Lord is like, nope, Satan, you, you can go this far, but no further. It's almost like the beginning of the book of Job. Okay? Which shows that God is in control here, but that Satan is allowed to function. Satan, again, second coming hasn't occurred. Satan has not yet been bound the thousand years. So no wonder we have to face temptation and tribulation. It's part of our test. Who will we choose to follow? But here, the day will come when the man of sin is revealed. The day will come where we have to face his full force. In some ways, maybe this is a a preview of what we'll see at the end of the millennium. I mean, children have grown up without temptation and without sin, and that doesn't sound like much of a test. But think about the end of the millennium when Satan is loosed for that little season. Oh, now the test has come. I hope the thousand years have prepared you for it. But it's go time, and you've got to overcome. Have we been in some ways in... Oh, a mini-millennium. At least wickedness has not been unleashed at its, at its full strength. But will there come days where the Lord lets us know, you've got to be able to handle things. I will be here. Uh, where there is a, an increase of darkness, there is an increase of light. And we're seeing that happen in the last days as things are more polarized. And yes, there are more temples and greater priesthood power and, and a more organized kingdom and the restoration is in crescendo. That's true. But wickedness is in crescendo too. And both God and the adversary are pulling us out of this murky middle and we're gravitating to the poles. Okay? This is part of the, the wind-up scenes in these last days as well. He says in verse 8, Then shall that wicked be revealed, or that wicked one, we could say, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. I mean, that's good news. <laughs> the light will come and completely cast out the darkness. And the spirit of his mouth, what a great description. We started seeing some armor of God hints in First Thessalonians, a breastplate and a helmet. Well, how's this for the sword of the spirit and the word? The spirit from his mouth consuming the evil all around us. 
He shall destroy it with the brightness of his coming. Like I said, there's light driving out darkness. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. JST. Yea, the Lord, even Jesus, whose coming is not until after there cometh a falling away by the working of Satan. So, yeah, Satan's coming, but Christ is coming too. And Christ is coming to destroy Satan, to bind him those thousand years. What's been Satan, what has Satan been up to in the meantime? He's been using all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You see at the end there, it's not enough to have the truth. We've got to love it. According to Joseph Smith Matthew, how do we overcome the deception that's taking place in the last days? I mean, the deceivableness that he's describing here. It's when we treasure up the words of life. Which again, isn't just skimming scripture. It's treasuring it up. It's loving truth. And when you love it that much, and again, I'm speaking to the choir, you love it. Here you are enduring hour after hour, but soaking it up because you love the truth so much, you will not be deceived. In fact, that, that, the power, the signs, the lying wonders, you're like, I don't wonder at that. I wonder at the marvelous work and the wonder that God is doing. I'm part of that work. Or the deceivableness of unrighteousness. It's interesting because unrighteousness is so deceptive. But it's also our own unrighteousness that makes us deceivable. Whereas our righteousness, if we love the truth, I can't be deceived. I, I know the truth. I love the truth. I, I have such a, so much experience with it that when you juxtapose it against error, no, I can spot a counterfeit from a mile away because I love the real thing so much as to know every detail. That's how much I, I pour over the real thing. No deceivableness here. In verse 11, he says, For this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that one's tough, because it seems like, are we crediting God for these problems? I mean, why'd you let the devil out? Well, again, if it's the resurrection of the unrighteous at the end, the telestial, well, they're giving Satan power by listening. Are we doing the same? The mystery of iniquity at work, has it lulled us into a false sense of security and started to fulfill what Isaiah prophesied, that people will call good evil and evil good. And so now, no wonder wickedness can really come out of the shadows because it's masquerading as light. It's, it thinks, it convinces people it's truth. Man, we're so deceivable. And by being deceived, we give the adversary more and more power until it's no longer a mystery of wickedness. It's neither mysterious nor considered wicked. It's in the full view of everyone. And here comes the man of sin, setting himself up as God, claiming the temple of God as his own. And people are falling prey to it and worshiping that. False philosophies all around. But where does that leave God in all of this? Verse 11 and 12 is interesting. God sends them the strong delusion. Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame God for this. In some ways, we've got to blame ourselves, and God has to honor our agency. Fine, you want strong delusion? 
I guess him who letteth will let. I have to. I can't withhold him anymore because you won't allow me to. So, I mean, fine, chalk it up to me. Blame me that I'm sending strong delusion. No, you are requesting it. You really would prefer darkness to light? Fine. Have it your way. But then verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's been a lot of verses of bad news here, but verse 13, we shift back to the good. How oh, thank heaven you're aware of the mystery of iniquity and you're not falling prey to it. Thank heaven that the Lord is sanctifying you instead of allowing you to fall prey to strong delusion. Thank heaven you love the truth because that truth is setting you free as it should. In verse 15 he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And Talk about needing to be grounded, rooted, established, settled. That's what he's after. Stand fast. Hold the tradition. Otherwise, you'll fall prey to this falling away. Hold on to it. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. That's the key here. If you can put your trust in God, exercise real faith in Him, He's the one that sends everlasting consolation, no matter what you're dealing with. He's the one that gives you good hope through His grace, that enabling power. If you lay hold of that and hold firm, then what will God do? He will comfort your hearts, despite what you're suffering. He will establish you, despite the winds that are blowing you about or at least threatening to. He'll establish you in what? I love the end. In every good word and work. And we need both. The time we spend together in Scripture is our attempt to allow God to establish us in His word. But if we just sit here, listening to lessons, or watching the word play out in front of us, if we don't work at it, if we don't get out of our chairs and and let the rubber hit the road at some point, then are we as established as we need to be? I don't know of anything better than Scripture and service. To be immersed in those things, oh, that will keep us firm and unshaken. That's the hope here. And then chapter 3, he ends this letter. It's been a brief one. If we saw in second coming context and apostasy waiting in the wings, how do I hold true? How do I stand fast? Okay, every word, every work. So what kind of word should I be living? What kind of work should I be performing? Just like we saw at the end of the first letter, here's some rubber hits the road kind of advice. We'll see the similar things in, at the end of Second Thessalonians. This third and final chapter Look for the kind of counsel that Paul gives. 
because this is what's going to get us through the apostasy and on to the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is how we need to live. Verse 1, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. I mean, we're praying for you and sending letters to you, but will you please pray for us so the word can go forth? No obstructions, nothing stopping the work, nothing slowing it down. We got driven out of your town. We've been kind of kicked around from place to place. But man, if the doors would just open so that we could have free course, then people really could be established in every word and every work. He says that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. I mean, that's another thing you need to pray for. Pray that we can overcome those faithless, wicked, unreasonable men. I actually love the word unreasonable. It could also be translated perverse or injurious. But I like the way the King James translators gave it to us. Because you know what? Sometimes wicked really, wickedness really does seem unreasonable. They're the ones always crying irrational for us with these frenzied minds and these false traditions. And, but really, to narrow yourself to that restricted epistemology, that's kind of unreasonable. To say it has to be your way and not allow for the possibility of any other, that's unreasonable too. The kind of life you're demanding that I live, your so-called tolerance that is so intolerant of my perspectives, that's unreasonable. Not just wicked. So deliver us from all of that. And the Lord will. Paul says, but the Lord is faithful. Some men are not, but God is. The Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And that's what we've been praying for all along. We have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do, that's the present, and will do, that's the future, the things which we command you. There's Paul's faith in the Lord's protective power. There's his confidence in the rock upon which that branch of the church has been built. Trust in him. Turn to him, pray for his strength and power, and we won't be moved. In verse 5, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. You remember in the first letter, there was this prayer that God would direct you to those that are struggling. We talked about the, help me discern the, the loose brick in the wall that they've placed between us. Direct us to them. Well, here there's some more directing going on. And it's direct my heart into your love. Direct me into patient waiting. There's something about the troubled mind of the last day. The shaken faith. And that mentally and emotionally, we are going a million ways in a million, at, a, at a million miles an hour. And to pray that God will simply direct our hearts. When our mind is wandering, no, 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 bring it back here. Or I start getting upset about the stuff that's going on. Let direct it into the love of God. Or I become impatient and wondering when, what's taking the Lord so long to come or to answer my prayer or to resolve my concern or to heal my illness. Just direct your heart into patient waiting in Christ. That is a beautiful prayer to be offering. Father, please direct my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, my actions. Dig a deep channel 
so that whenever I'm struggling, I end up coming right back there, which brings me right back to thee. In verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. And we saw that at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians also. We set you a good example. And follow that example and you'll end up following Christ. Unfortunately, not everybody's doing that. And there are some that are setting bad examples. Don't follow them. In fact, withdraw from them or have them withdraw from you. Now, this isn't just avoiding, oh, the fornication all around you from those wicked Gentiles that didn't join the church. Here, it's withdraw yourself from every brother. Oh, wait a minute. So this is a fellow disciple, a fellow citizen with the saints, the household of God. Well, yeah, there's fallings away even within the church. So what do you do here? This is church discipline. Is there excommunication? Is there disfellowshipment? Well, this idea of withdrawing, wow, what did they do wrong? Well, the more obvious is they're not walking after the tradition they have received. They're not following the teachings of Jesus Christ as passed down through true messengers, prophets and apostles of God. But also this talk of their walking disorderly, another way to say that is unruly or disruptively, or maybe the most accurate translation, idly. They're not doing anything. I mean, there could be some disruptive behavior, that's disorderly conduct. But to think about just being idle, I mentioned this before, that Paul refused to be idle and just let them provide for him. Nope, I'm, I know how to make tents, I'll do manual labor, I'll provide for myself. I don't want to burden you, and I don't want to be beholden to you. But here, in 2 Thessalonians, he's applying the same counsel to the people. And don't, don't be mooches, <laughs> let's put it that way. Do not... Here's the thing. In the ancient Roman world, especially if you were poor, you could almost enslave yourself. You could become a, a kind of an indentured servant. Or you're looking for some wealthy patron from the Roman aristocracy, the nobility. And, hey, I'll be your servant. I'll do whatever you ask. And you'll put, you can provide room and board. And, well, again, those come with strings attached. And so if somebody's going to just kind of sit around and wait and like, hey, these... Either I'm waiting for the Romans to give me their handouts, or I'm waiting for the Christians to give me theirs. I mean, if there's a sense of consecration, we saw that at the beginning of the book of Acts. Like, hey, if I join the Christian movement, I don't have to work anymore. Everybody takes care of each other. We have these agape feasts. That's what church is. It's like the Last Supper writ large. It's not just a token piece of you know, crumb of bread and a little cup of water. It's, no, it's the full meal. We are reenacting the Last Supper for, at church. And so, man, become a Christian and free meal every Sunday. Awesome. And they seem to be helping each other out and providing for one another during the week, too. It's like, how long can I go without having to lift a finger? Oh, that's idle. That's disruptive. That's disorderly. And if they've come into the kingdom just seeking handouts, that's not communion with Christ. We've come to give, not just to receive. What are you offering? What are you contributing? Or consecration will fall apart before it even gets off the ground. 
So withdraw. Disfellowship. That's what he gets at in verse 8 and 9. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, which is better translated, we didn't take any food without paying for it, but we wrought with labor and travail. There's those maternal verbs again. And we did it night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. I mean, we were apostles. We could have asked for financial support. We didn't. We wanted to provide for ourselves. We're asking that you do likewise. Provide for yourselves so you can provide for others. In verse 10, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear there are some which walk among you disorderly. There's that same word as before. Think of it as idly working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So again, don't be a mooch. (laughs) Provide for yourself. Work hard. Otherwise, what will become of the kingdom when everyone in it is a taker with no givers? Now we have to be careful about this because Sometimes we take the verse out of context and just go, oh, see, if you don't work, you don't get to eat. And we make that kind of a a blanket statement that there should be no government welfare, forget handouts. They put themselves into this situation. They could work. They look able-bodied. Oh, careful. Because we do need to provide an offer and help and lift everywhere we can. Specifically, they won't eat. We're talking about the communion meal. We're talking about the agape feast. This is disfellowshipment from church. This isn't send them off to the poorhouse. Okay? Change. Repent. Contribute. And we'd love to have you come back. Remember, this is a privilege, not a right, to belong to the kingdom of God. We have to be careful because we were blessed with an incredible pioneer ethic. Right? Use it up wear it out, make it do or do without. I was raised on those kinds of principles and they've served me well. But if taken to the extreme, then we're too prideful to ever ask for help even when we desperately need it. It's not that I'm unwilling to work, but I need help to be able to eat. And fast offerings are there for you. You'll contribute to them when you can, but you can accept them when you must. Okay, find the better balance in all of that. And then Paul concludes this letter with a few more pieces of general advice that I hope we'll follow as we prepare for the second coming. In verse 13 he says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. I mean, these others aren't weary at all because they're not doing anything at all. But that's not you. You Thessalonian saints, you've been doing good things. I just don't want you to give up. I don't want you to wear out. It's a long haul. Prepare yourself. Be steady. Be faithful. Be rooted and grounded. But also, don't run faster than you have strength. Don't burn out. No compassion fatigue. Be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, 
and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now, right there, I can picture people going, oh, oh see, see, no wonder the church is a shame culture. We're, ta we're taught to be, we're told to be. Oh yeah, go shame these people. Actually, the Greek word just means to turn, as in to invert. And it can even be used in good ways or bad ways. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the same verb is, is translated as respect, though elsewhere it's translated as disrespect. It's really an interesting word. It can go in either direction. And what's happening here is we're trying to turn people. Might there be some positive peer pressure? Perhaps. We'll see this clarified in the very next phrase, but if we pause here, beware of shame, but also don't overswing the pendulum to the point that we can't make anyone, I mean, the thought that anyone might feel bad, oh, we've got to protect their fragile feelings. That's taking it too far in the opposite direction. Because then we, I mean, too far in one extreme, we condemn them, but on the other extreme, we condone them. And somehow we have to balance things in the middle where people know that behavior is unacceptable. But you can change. So if it's a matter of withdrawing from them or withdrawing their membership, their communion, excommunication, no fellowship, because you want to partake of the fellowship of suffering. You don't want to have to suffer. You just want to be able to take from everyone else. No, have no company with him. There's a distance now. But hopefully it's a distance that wakes them up and what makes them want to return. Because that's been the goal all along. We're not trying to shame, permanently shame them. Notice the next phrase. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's the key. We're trying to turn, that's the word again, we're trying to turn busybodies into busy bodies willing to lift where they stand and serve and give, contribute. We're trying to help them because that's in their own best interest. We're not trying to treat them like an enemy. They aren't. We're treating them like a brother. But sometimes brothers, sisters, it's like, come on, you're part of the family. You, you got to help out or, or it all falls on the rest of us. And if you've ever had to call out a brother or sister, there's still love there, but it's like, we're in this together, okay? This is a good example of section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that you are reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, but you're showing afterwards a greater outpouring of love so they know you're not their enemy. That's what Paul is pushing for here. I remember as a kid being on sports teams, and it was a band of brothers. We loved each other, we supported each other, but we held each other accountable. And that seems to be something we might be missing in our culture these days. I remember times where we would be doing, I was a receiver, and so we'd have lines of all the receivers, and we'd be doing, you know, deep patterns. And the coach sometimes would say, you don't get to stop until everyone in the line catches the pass. If anybody drops it, everybody has to do another round. Oh, boy, did we cheer each other on. And boy, were we hoping that even the ones that struggle and what kind of, what we, wouldn't, we didn't want to call them butterfingers. We didn't want to take away their confidence. It's like, you got this, you can do this. And then it's like, <gasps> holding your breath. And yes, that last receiver caught it. Miracle. <laughs> we're with you. Or times we'd all have to do laps and conditioning. And times where the coach would say, 
unless everyone makes it around uh, the, the, the lap in this amount of time, it doesn't count for anybody because this is a team sport. And, oh yeah, we weren't making fun of the slow kids then. We were cheering them on and almost kind of <laughs> pushing them forward and picking them up and moving. It's like, we, we got to get there or we're all running another lap. That holding each other accountable, but doing it in love as brothers and sisters is an important, an important part of collectively preparing for the second coming also. And collectively navigating the apostasy all around us. Okay, we got to do this together. And then the last verses, 16 through 18. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, like that's the distinguishing mark in all of his letters. I kind of sign off at the end, even if I've had another scribe write it up to that point. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And this letter ends. Pause for a moment with what he said there in verse 16. He wants them to have peace. Remember what he said earlier, if you're troubled, please come rest with us. Rest with Christ. Rest in Christ. Because if you want peace, there's no better source than the Prince of Peace himself. And he's coming. We're trying to prepare the earth for that so that the earth can rejoice in its own paradisical glory. It can heave a sigh of relief because it can finally rest itself. This is, this is the Lord's peace. It can only come from him, so come unto him by all means. Short letter, but a powerful one. The context, again, if these were the first letters Paul wrote, man, can you sense how eager and anxious the saints were for Christ to return? I hope that the patience that has been required of us these past 2,000 years does not rob us of the urgency we need going forward, looking forward to the coming of Christ and trying to allow him to hasten his work in its time, because it's time. Well, our final review. These beautiful one-liners running throughout Second Thessalonians, I pray the Spirit will remind you of the lesson that came attached. Your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all towards each other aboundeth. To you who are troubled, rest with us. He shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. That ye be not soon shaken in mind. For that day shall not come except their coming a falling away first. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. The Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ.
If any would not work, neither should he eat. Be not weary in well-doing. Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. And Paul's prayer to the Thessalonians is my prayer for, for you, for me, for all of us. I pray we will find peace through the Prince of Peace. I pray we can find the right balance of urgency and patience. It's almost a hurry up and wait kind of mentality, but the hurry up so that we can wait and rest in the Lord. Be prepared and then keep on preparing. There's nothing beats the feeling of having your homework done before the deadline. And I can turn it in whenever it's asked for. And if it's not asked for, well, good. I can do a little bit more rewriting and revising because I know there's always room for improvement. That's the case with all of us. I pray that we can feel that sense of urgency, but that we can run and not be weary and walk and not faint. More than anything, I, I rejoice in the promised coming of Christ. I admire him and want to do my very best to prepare others to be prepared for his coming. I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again here since these letters were so second coming focused. As Alma said of the first coming, this is how I've always felt about the second. Would to God that it might be in my day. But be it sooner or later, in it I shall rejoice. That's what Alma said. That's what I say. And I pray that collectively, if we can lift each other, if we can hold each other accountable in loving and patient ways, then we will be prepared. And the earth will be prepared. So that Jesus Christ can come and come quickly.